podcast world what's going on chat building back at you hope everybody is having a great week i hope everybody is having one of those times of the year to where we're kind of sad to see summer go but for guys like me and a lot of the crew that i hang out with we love to see the leaves change the kind of the temperature drop the barometric pressure drop that little chill in the air we know what's getting ready to happen for the next several months as fall and winter approach us and it just gets you thinking about how how humbling it is and how blessed we are to be able to go from an awesome summer on the boat and the beaches and and still working hard and then we get to experience the things that we get to come fall and winter in the outdoors and wildlife and mother nature and duck camps and goose camps and deer camps and whatever you choose to chase that's a special time of year i know that you guys are all feeling the exact same but it also makes me think a lot of how special life is and not to sound all tacky but little things in life that i believe we start to take for granted um on a daily basis on a daily basis whether it's our friends our family whether it's what our job our livelihood it's easy to look past things and try to look at the bigger picture but i want everybody to stop and reflect on what they do have and what is important not just those extracurricular things or those outside things like friends or family but think about your body we've talked about fitness here we've talked about training here we talk about nutrition here well what about things like our vision that's what i want to talk about today because as i get into my 40s i start to see changes i'm not ever going to sit there and say that i'm invincible or that i'm like some bionic man or the million dollar six million dollar man like lee majors was or whatever that was show was called things start to change vision hearing the bones ligaments joints it doesn't matter who you are you cannot stop the hands of time and today my guest is a, a friend of mine that i met again because of the common denominator of mallard ducks of philanthropy of charity the boys and girls club of america the boys and girls club of chucky meadows we've we've developed a friendship we've been in the goose blind together the duck blind he his name is dr matt mills I'm going to welcome him here, but I want him to tell the audience exactly what his profession is, because it's not just an eye doctor. It's not just somebody that you go and get a prescription for glasses. Welcome, Dr. Matt Mills. How are you, my brother? Hey, Chad. I'm doing great, and I'm happy to be here. And uh, as Chad mentioned, he and I do go back a little ways. Uh, I I first met Chad actually through his uh, generous donation to the Boys and Girls Club. So um, several years ago, me and a couple buddies were at the uh, Boys and Girls Club Trucking Meadows fundraiser in Reno and saw an opportunity to have a waterfowl hunt in northern Colorado, and that was donated by uh, Chad and the Fowl Life. And so we went out there and we had a fantastic time in uh, northern Colorado, in uh, Greeley and uh, Fort Collins, and uh, I got to hear... Uh, him talking his jargon to the waterfowl when we uh, had some success and we saw some beautiful countryside and some uh, had a great experience. And um, along the way, Chad and I have become friends and I and my involvement at the Boys and Girls Club is important to me and his generosity towards them is uh, is really appreciated. So that's something I'm happy to be involved in. So Chad, I really appreciate you having me today. I'm excited to talk to you and your listeners about vision and how important it is. I thought I'd, that we would talk a little bit about what vision is and how do we see um, the aspects of vision that affect our performance, both in daily life and out in the field. Um, we're also gonna talk a little bit about vision training and things you can do to improve your vision, uh, the differences between the vision that we have and the vision that animals have, and then about eye protection. 
what is your profession? What, what how when i see dr matt mills it's i i, I remember go, growing up and going to the optometrist because i wore glasses in school reading i like to wear glasses when i'm reading um i still do at this age but you're not just the guy that you go get a prescription from um what it, it, you're a surgeon Correct. but what is the what is the official title well i'm glad you asked me <laughs> it, uh, i'm an ophthalmologist and uh that means i'm an eye surgeon so we do handle the medical side of eye care, and we also handle the surgical side of eye care. My practice, I've been in Reno for 20 years, and, and you said uh, in your opening monologue about how we need to be thankful for everything in our lives, and I'm certainly thankful for you know the family God's blessed me with, and uh, thankful that I was fortunate enough to be recruited to come to Reno 20 years ago and uh, join a practice, which we've then been able to grow. So. My practice, eye care professionals, is pretty amazing. Um, I'm, as I said, I'm an ophthalmologist. I'm cataract, LASIK, anterior segment, and glaucoma surgery is really what I specialize in. But uh, this practice, Chad, is the, uh, the, the, the longest continuously active practice in Northern Nevada. I have a business license for the practice from 1955. Um, thankfully, I was not here then. But uh, <laughs> it's pretty cool to think that we carry on this tradition of excellence in eye surgery and eye care for Northern Nevada. One thing that I notice when I go to your office is how obviously things evolve, things change. Medicine, um, you, if you're going to get sick, I would think, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, it's probably a better, the best time in the history of the world to develop an illness if you were going to do that. And hopefully you never do as a person. But my point is doctor is that the, the evolution of medicine is there, the, the treatments, the way that people can keep people alive for a lot longer. There's a lot of things. I don't want to get into that. I don't, we're not here to talk about that, but that's very important to me the involvement. But when I go into your office, it's like Iron Man. It's like these machines that have been invented, the, the evolution of optometry and what you do in surgery, the, the machines that you test vision with the laser treatments the the things that are readily available for somebody to take care of their eyes are there there's probably never been a better time in the history of the world to do what you do you know chad you touched on a lot of exciting uh points there in that that little discussion um one of the things that drew me to ophthalmology in the very beginning in my early days back in medical school when i'm still wrapping my brain around what it is i wanted to do and i thought about ER medicine, I thought about orthopedics, I did rotations in CT surgery, and um, I saw this uh, intersection of technology and expertise in ophthalmology. And I recognized even back then, which was uh, early 90s, I was in medical school, I saw this intersection of the technology and the, the, the rate at which our field was going to advance based on that technology. And I made it, um, a point in a, uh, my own sort of personal mission to stay at the forefront of all those things. And that really does make ophthalmology and the practice of ophthalmology incredibly rewarding and, and fun and engaging. So the technology that we have right now, and, and I, I like to say this uh, because it's true, and that is the technology that we use today in the most commonly performed surgery in the world, which is cataract surgery, uh, this past week, uh, we moved the bar once again higher, and we, we began to implant a new type of lens that's never been FDA approved in, in the U.S. before, and it's called the panoptics lens. It's a trifocal lens. In the past, I've had lenses who, that could give you distance or near, but could maybe fall short at intermediate. 
And so for the first time in the history of medicine, we now have a lens that can we can implant in your eye and realistically expect to give you distance, intermediate, and near. And that's just one example. I was the first surgeon in Northern Nevada to use a laser for cataract surgery or to have a laser for cataract surgery. First surgeon in Northern Nevada to perform wavefront LASIK. Um, I, as I said, I've, I've made it my mission, and, and that's on behalf of my patients, to stay at the forefront and to evaluate every new technology that comes out and to evaluate the benefits and, um, uh, and the, the worthwhile nature of these things and decide is that something that needs to be incorporated into my practice or is that something that maybe won't stand the test of time and, and something that we don't need to do. When you, when you go back to the early days, though, when you first were in school, what is the difference between you and an MD? You, oh, well, I am an MD. I went to, yeah, I'm, You're a, an, I'm a medical doctor, graduated from University of Texas Health Science Center um, uh, in San Antonio with an MD degree. And then uh, following that, did a year of internship at Walter Reed in Washington, D.C., and then did uh, residency training in ophthalmology at LSU uh, Medical Center in Shreveport. And then I had a short time in the military uh, in Fort Riley, Kansas, in Manhattan, Kansas, which was a fantastic area. It's actually, Chad, unlike you, I did not grow up hunting or in a family or a tradition of hunting. It's a great area. But I was introduced to uh, whitetail deer hunting over there as well as uh, walleye fishing. Um, And uh, that's kind of where my uh, love for uh, the outdoors sort of took off. So as an, an MD in vision, you become a surgeon. You, there's a lot of intricate details in every part of the body, in every surgery that could be performed. There's different things that surgeons have to be, you know, dead on precise to make this happen. Like, I can't imagine. That's why I always tell people, Dr. Matt Mills, is like, what we do, and I don't take, I don't discredit anything that anybody does in the world, whether you're a janitor or a garbage man or a pilot or a military guy, it just seems like when you put that mask over your nose and mouth and you put that light on your head and those doors close and you have your assistance, I don't know if there's a more important job in the world. What I mean, and I know research and science is so important, but with the steady hand that is actually going to take a sharp object, and I I know sharp because I've seen what it can do to just a duck breast when I cut it off the bone or when I slice my <laughs> finger with one, and now you're taking something that is sharper than what I used to do that, and you are going into something that literally could make or break not only your career, but change the the outcome of that person's life for better or worse if a mistake was made. In my opinion, I don't know if there could be ever more pressure put on a person. So where I'm going with that is when when you've got the mindset and you're in college back there in Texas and you're going, I really want to do this. I'm going to go work on a cadaver. That's probably what you do is you work on a cadaver and you practice and you, and you train. And then your first live surgery comes. Was it something that you knew that you had the ability to do? Is there something that tells you as a teenager in high school, man, I got a steady hand. I think that I can go into somebody's eye and not make a mistake. You know, Chad, that's a very interesting line of discussion. And nobody's actually ever talked to me about that before. And that is one of the other things that drew me to ophthalmology is I, I knew that I had a certain level of manual dexterity and also you have to have sort of a mental focus. Um, there are individuals who will work their way into an ophthalmology residency and begin that track of training. And then if they don't have the hands and the steadiness and the skills, they may become a medical ophthalmologist or they may find that they want to transition into something else. We actually had a member of our uh, residency staff 
go that direction because it was just not feasible for them to be a successful surgeon. Um, so it is very demanding and it's, um, you know, I'm 25,000 plus cataract surgeries into it, thousands and thousands of LASIK surgeries. And it has become at this point, second nature and really unconscious or subconscious, but the, the gravity and the seriousness and the, um, value that is, is at stake when I do a surgery on any given individual is never lost on me. I take every individual patient, every procedure that we do, uh, with utmost importance and respect because of the things that you said, we are going to impact their life. And for the most part, uh, the most gratifying, rewarding part of what I do is I can take people who prior to surgery may not be able to see that big E on the screen, which is 2400. And the very next day, whether it's LASIK, cataract, or some other type of procedure, which I do, uh, many of those folks are going to see 2020 and in many cases, 2015. So it's an amazing thing. So when you first start this training process, your question to me is, how do you know? You don't know that you're going to be successful, but you have to believe you are when you get started. And I do remember vividly the very first cataract surgery. Um, we in medicine and medical training, you do certain procedures in your uh, medical school experience, but they're not going to let you cut on someone's eye, right? So that doesn't happen until residency. And the first thing you do is you take off a trigium, which is on the surface of the eye, and it would be really hard to, to mess that up. But then you have to start going inside the eye. And so I think every ophthalmologist can probably remember in great detail their very first cataract surgery where you take that sharp instrument, uh, we call it a keratome, and make an incision and now you've got instruments inside another human being's eye. It's an amazing thing. I just, yeah, I just, that, that's what I think of is just like, when I poke myself in the eye on accident or you get something in your eye, it's not something that people, I don't know if anybody can take it lightly. It's, it's worrisome, it's a pain in the butt, it's something that causes pain, it causes discomfort. And I just can't imagine like being, being you know, having that mindset. And I'm not trying to oversell what you do. I know you're very humble in what you do, but I look at it as 20, 25,000 cataracts. Explain to cataracts, what, what does that mean when you hear, okay, you're going in for cataract, is it a replacement or what does that, what is that? I want you to go over cataracts, replacement, sure, and then- I'd be happy to. Um, cataracts, are a condition in which the lens inside your eye over the course of your life will eventually become cloudy. And this is a universal process. Every single person who lives long enough will develop cataracts. And I call that job security, but um, that's a joke. <laughs> no, I like it because I think that's what um, I need probably. But um, so th the way this works is when you're born, this lenticular structure inside your eye, and it's very similar to the magnifying lens that you would use as a child to burn a leaf on a sidewalk. Um, there's a lens structure inside your eye. And when you're born, it's crystal clear. And because these cells continue to replicate throughout the course of your life, but in a confined environment, eventually there's an overcrowding situation and they lose organization and it becomes too dense to transmit light effectively. And then it becomes opaque and you start to lose visual acuity. And eventually you reach a point where even glasses, contacts, or any sort of corrective device like that won't be able to give you adequate vision. 
And then at that point, people present for cataract surgery or referred for cataract surgery. And then in that surgery, we make a very tiny incision. And, and part of the evolution of this procedure, the incision that was made in the previous generation of surgery was 13 millimeters, which is basically 180 degrees around the edge of the cornea. Um, and of course, that's a massive incision that required lots of sutures and um, ho even hospitalization for people to recover from. And now we make that incision is approximately two millimeters. So we make this tiny self-sealing incision. We go inside the eye, we vacuum out that cloudy, opaque cataract structure, and then we replace it with a lens implant. And the technology that is uh, within those lens implants is another really exciting part of what we get to do. Um, originally, there were no uh, lens implants available and cataracts were removed and the person was left without a lens. That condition is called aphakia or aphakic. And those people require very powerful contact lenses or Coke bottle glasses to even be able to see. Uh, well, then in the 70s, um, people began working on development of an intraocular lens implant. And late 70s, early 80s, lens implants became widely available. And since that time, the design and the materials of those lenses has, as you noted, with all technology has improved exponentially. So from 13 millimeters to two millimeters, you're looking at from 180 degrees around the cornea. Mm -hmm. Now you're looking at not even 45 degrees. It's a clock hour. A clock it's hour. It's about 15 degrees. So if I'm, if in layman's terms, first of all, what's the youngest cataract patient that you've ever seen? Is it, cause you say it's job security. As people get old, you're probably going to develop this symptom. What's the youngest you've seen in your career? Well, there are conditions and unfortunately they're quite rare where children can even be born with cataracts. And I have seen a few of those. Pediatric cataract surgery is a specialty uh, unto itself in and of its own, uh, territory. Um, you know, it's a very unique, uh, situation. They respond differently. Their immune system is much more active. Uh, the, the way you measure their eye for the lens implant is different. So I do not personally perform pediatric cataract surgery. The youngest person I've worked on, and I have had to remove the lens in, in trauma cases, uh, in a five-year-old. Um, and, uh, that was actually a really a gratifying case in that we were able to save this young man's eye after a penetrating eye injury. And, uh, I did have to suture his cornea and remove the lens. And then several months later, um, in his home city in Sacramento, uh, they were able to put another lens implant in and he did quite well. So in layman terms, doctor, when you're sitting on your couch, what is this what is the first sign that somebody like myself or anybody that doesn't have any experience in eye medicine in eye surgery anything that you do what what do you start to notice you say blurry cloudiness is it almost like you wake up and you got some stuff in your eyes and you got to get it out in the morning is it kind of like that in the in the middle of the day yeah generally these cataracts are progressing throughout our adult life starting probably in your 40s and the first symptom of a cataract is not even anything to do with your visual acuity. It's the fact that like, like you and I, you start to have to hold things further away to read them. We start to lose the ability to focus and that's called accommodation. And the reason we're losing accommodation, the muscle that activates and actuates accommodation is called the ciliary muscle. It doesn't get weaker. The lens is becoming stiffer and less compliant. 
And so the very first symptom of a cataract is, gee whiz, why, why can't I see this thing when it's close and I have to hold it out at arm's length? So that's the very first. The first symptom. And then from there, it can be anything pertaining to just gradual degradation of vision. The, the, the symptom that really brings most of the patients in to see me is this thing, this, this concept of glare. The lens is supposed to and designed to focus the light, but as it becomes more opaque, it begins to scatter the light. And so the earliest effect in which a patient will notice that in their life is usually trying to drive at dusk or dawn or at night, especially with oncoming headlights. So people will begin to notice, I see fine during the day, but when I try to drive at night, it's miserable. And if somebody hits me with the high beams, I'm you know, dangerous and could potentially run off the road. Um, so it's that scattering of the light and that glare that brings most people in. So does cataracts, is it, would, be, would it be considered cataracts replacement? Is that the, is that the, what you do? Or yeah, is that, we, the, you know, we refer to it as cataract extraction with intraocular lens implant. Does it improve your vision as far as, when you say 2020, 2015, can it improve your vision when I go to your office and I look at that eye chart, will it improve your vision in that, in that sense of the word? In most cases, the answer is absolutely yes. Um, you know, if somebody has a disease like macular degeneration or something that can limit their vision, we may not be able to improve their acuity on the chart, but we can certainly improve their peripheral acuity and their ability to ambulate, navigate their environment and get around. For everyone else, we are expecting to improve that vision on that chart. We can take people. Um, I had a gentleman this week who was a minus 10. Minus 10 not only can't see the big E, on the screen, which is 2400, I could be sitting three feet in front of his face and put my fingers up and he could barely count my fingers. After surgery, uh, this gentleman is 2020 at distance, no glasses. So just cataract surgery, just the cataract surgery. So is, when you start talking about the surgeries, the Lasix, the cataracts, the popular ones, is cataracts like the most common one? It's the most common surgery performed in the US. It's the most common surgery performed in the world. Wow. And fortunately, it's one of the most successful. Fortunately, it is. Yeah. And you've done 25,000 of these. And how long does one take? I mean, is it, does it vary? It, you know, it varies. Um, again, back in the day when we had to make a 180 degree incision and put about a dozen sutures in, that took 30, 45 minutes. The average cataract case today with the modern technology and techniques that we use, it takes about 15 minutes. 15 minutes. And, and listen, I would never be in there trying to go as fast as I can and then, you know, looking at the clock or anything like that. But you do want to be efficient and the less time we spend with instruments and manipulations going on inside the eye, the, the less uh, incidental trauma and things like that there are and the quicker the recovery. So it is in everyone's best interest to do a clean case and to be efficient. And what percentage in this 15 minutes is, is it one eye or is it two eyes 100% of the time? We do one eye at a time. Um, there could be special case scenarios in which we might consider doing both at the same time, but really for safety's sake, we'd like to do one eye at a time. And um, 
we, we want that first eye to have a chance to recover. We want to be sure that there's no inflammation or infection. And, you know, an infection following cataract surgery is extremely rare. It's devastating. We don't ever want to see it, uh, but it's extremely rare. It's in the neighborhood of between one in 5,000 and one in 10,000. So it's extremely rare. Um, but so we want to make sure that first eye has a chance to uh, begin to heal. You know, you know, we can do them even a day apart or a week apart. In my practice, we have found sort of a, a nice interval is to do it two weeks apart because uh, while our techniques and our equipment is very, very scientific, there is also a biological organ involved. It's a biological system, not a mechanical or optical system. It's not purely optical. So we get to learn a little bit from what happens with the outcome in the first eye as we strategize, plan, and select our lens for the second eye. So is 100% of the cataracts cases, doctor, both eyes? You, I know you don't um, no, do No, the there same could day. be. The, the, I had a gentleman this week. There's a, there are cases of unilateral cataracts all the time. Now, ultimately, everybody will get a cataract in both eyes. But I had a gentleman this week, and he was about 53 years old, and... Um, he had suffered some trauma, actually work-related trauma. He got hit in the eye by a chain, and that triggered a cataract. So here he is. He's 53 years old. He has no vision whatsoever. It's called hand motion. When you can't count the number of fingers at any distance, the next level is hand motion. So this gentleman had a white, mature hand motion cataract and due to trauma. And then in his other eye, essentially no cataract, not 20-20 vision, but let's say 20, 30, 20, 40. Uh, the day after his surgery, he was 20, 40, which would have qualified him for a driver's license without glasses. Without glasses. So, so that's an incredible impact on his life. Last question on the cataracts um, segment here. Well, I know we're going to get back into it, but when it comes to the other eye surgeries, and we're going to get into these, there's lens extracular, uh, lens exchange. Lens we, call, exchange. It, we call it refractive lens exchange, which is very similar to cataract surgery. Okay. You have LASIK. LASIK. You have cataract. Do you, and, uh, there's more, right? There are more. Let okay. me just throw some of those out there. Okay. Uh, a procedure that we sometimes do that's related to LASIK, sort of a, a cousin, if you will, or um, a brother uh, or a sibling of LASIK is called PRK. And PRK stands for photorefractive keratectomy. And it's basically just like LASIK, only for some people, it's not safe to create a flap. And, and the flap expedites healing, but it does uh, cut into the thickness or the stability of the cornea. So for some patients, we can't do LASIK, but we can do PRK, which is basically performing LASIK uh, very close to the surface of the cornea rather than underneath a flap. And then another uh, really successful and... and um, worthwhile surgery that we offer in our practice and very few practices do is called uh, ICL. ICL stands for implantable columnar lens. Columnar is the material and nobody knows what that means. Uh, it can be thought of conceptually as implantable contact lens. So basically we're taking a, what amounts to something similar to a contact lens and inserting it inside your eye and we place it behind your iris and in front of your own natural lens. And with that, we can correct great amounts of nearsightedness, much more so than with LASIK. LASIK is FDA approved up to minus 14, but we're not going to do that. We have found over the years, the optics are not that good. The stability can have some problems and we can actually induce uh, a destabilizing condition called uh, 
ectasia. So we're not going to do a minus 14 LASIK. At that point, we'd be looking at a refractive lens exchange or an ICL. ICL is approved up to, I believe it's like minus 20. Um, so lower levels of nearsightedness are best addressed with LASIK. Higher levels of nearsightedness are better addressed with ICLs. And there's actually very few surgeons in the country and as well as in this area that actually offer ICLs. We have a lot of success with those. You just blew me up with a lot of thoughts, and I got a couple of them. I just got to grab this pen because I don't want to, um, I don't want to miss this word because I went through it with you. Um, I, I've, I had a thought cross my mind when you just said the word, you know, several surgeons, and you don't have to answer this. It just came into my mind just now. When I drive around towns, different towns, Vegas is a big one. I see a lot of billboards with lawyers on them. If you get in an accident, call me. Here's my app. Call me, okay? And, and, and I see him too. I don't want to. I don't want to come across as like, is I'm, I'm just just this weird thought going through my head. I lose credit. I lose like, they don't have credibility with me when because I know a lot of good attorneys that would mm -hmm. never have a billboard. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this is ringing true with mm -hmm. you, but the attorneys that I've worked with in business mm -hmm. and, and trademarking and intellectual property and stuff, you'll never see them. And I know there's different cases in every scenario. I have good friends that have billboards, but it seems to me like the attorneys on the billboards are like. They're like, man, you got, we got to get your business. We got to get your business. Is it authentic? Is it the same in eye surgery? Now, where I'm going with that is that you drive around towns and I see dozens of billboards, if not hundreds of LASIK, $99 per eye or LASIK this, qualify this. We'll get you qualified for LASIK. Bring your insurance card in. Don't need insurance. It's almost like you don't need a, you don't need a down payment on a car. Just $99 gets you a Hyundai and you're off on your way. Is that losing credibility with the surgeon? And if you can't answer that, I don't understand because it's your respective field of practice. Yeah, no, Chad, you bring up an interesting concept. Um, and we're going to zoom out and take a, you know, a view from 30,000 feet for just a second. Many, many years ago, when I graduated from medical school, almost no physicians in the U.S. advertised. Then over the years, uh, there became sort of a... a, a a subset of doctors in different fields like plastic surgery and ophthalmology that began to advertise. And initially this was completely frowned upon by the establishment for the reasons that you're just, uh, you know, uh, uh, elucidated. Um, so I, I personally don't have a extensive marketing um, uh, program at any time, but I do sort of what I call community based branding so because i want to be involved with the university i've always sponsored unr sports you'll see a heavy presence at Mackey and lawler when unr sports teams are playing so we put just our logo i care professionals up on the board but we do that so that we're financially supporting those student athletes and those programs and the university itself um, i'm also on, on the faculty of the medical school and so we have involvement in the community so ours is sort of a community-based branding and then what you're talking about is sort of just that mass media outreach. And, you know, to each his own. Um, uh, that's not something that I've ever felt like I needed to do. And it's not really my business model. Um, some of those that you see that advertise quite heavily, um, it, it, it does actually, as you alluded to, uh, sometimes get down to a little bit of uh, uh, used car sales tactics. And they do a little bit of bait and switch. And I know this because... Uh, patients that visit those practices actually will also visit my practice. And, and then I find out that, well, yeah, they may advertise a super low price, but once you get in the door, they say things like, oh, you want your stigmatism 
to be treated or, oh, you want a laser to create the flap versus an older mechanical device. And so they kind of upcharge the patients, which is something I, I am philosophically completely against. I actually charge a certain price for LASIK and the price that I charge allows me to do the most advanced, most sophisticated form of LASIK that that patient qualifies for. And what that means is I'm always going to use a laser to create the flap. And there's a less expensive way to do that that involves a mechanical microkeratome. And some people still do that for cost reasons or maybe for lack of access to technology. Um, so we'll always use a laser to create the flap. And then for every patient that qualifies, I'm going to use wavefront technology. And that's more expensive for me to apply to the patient, but it's a much more sophisticated and uh, individualized treatment algorithm coming out of that computer that drives that laser. And so my price for LASIK is $2,700 per eye, and I don't vary that. And um, I, uh, but with that, it allows me to um, not put the patient in a position where they have to decide, well, if I want really good, it's this, but if I want sort of good, it's this. And if I can't really afford it, I'll get some lower common denominator. Um, I don't want to put a, a patient in that position. I just want to be able to offer the most advanced, highest quality, highest technology procedure I can. And that's what we have success with. 85% of my LASIK patients, they don't come out seeing 2020, they come out seeing 2015. And that's 25% better than 2020. And I can't guarantee any individual a 2020 outcome, but our track record with this technology is, is exemplary. It's outstanding. I guess there's just some professions that don't heed that type of exposure, in my opinion. And I could be dead wrong. It just when I look at a billboard and I see that and I know what you what you kind of what you guys do, um, I don't know. It's one of those things to where I, I just look at it in different to where the authenticity of the profession to me is is kind of I don't know if it's sacrificed really, but I just think it means it more is than, in some cases compromised. Chad, compromise, you know, that's I, I, I actually would not have been the one to bring this up, but you've brought up an interesting line of discussion. And I want to just tell you an experience I had. Um, when I was in the military back in, you know, still very uh, new and in, in three years out of residency. So at that point, you're still somewhat inexperienced and certainly inexperienced on the business side. I was looking at job opportunities, Chad, in every nice city in the West, from Seattle to Tucson. I looked at San Francisco. I looked at San Diego. I looked at Denver, Colorado. I looked at Phoenix and every desirable city. And I, I uh, had some conversations with a doctor who was an established doctor with a lot of name recognition in San Francisco. And this doctor is one of these doctors that advertises extensively. And I, I, I'm not making this up and this to me, you know, um, was kind of startling. And uh, immediately I kind of recoiled and knew that this was not the practice for me. But he told me over the phone that pretty much every single person who comes in, sits in that chair is going to have surgery because they have X thousand of dollars in, in um, advertising already out there per patient. So he had already done the math. The number he told me was $4,000. So he said, every patient that sits in that chair, I already have $4,000 in advertising. So pretty much they're all gonna get surgery. And that's not very ethical. <laughs> I just, I, 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 the word you use is compromise and I said sacrifice, but to, to me, there's certain professions that cannot be compromised like that because of the first statement I made about what you do with your hands and your knowledge yeah. and your, it almost makes me go, 
I wonder if those guys even have a degree to be doing these surgeries or is it kind of just one of these meat houses to where they're bait and switching and then you're just like a piece of meat. Yeah, we'll get you a warranty. Yeah, we'll get you an extended warranty. Let me go talk to my finance manager, make sure we get you qualified and then boom. And that's the word I just wrote, wrote down is that I want to go into the qualifications for LASIK because I didn't qualify. I want to understand this, and I don't sure. know if you have this in your notes, but I no, think this, this is, is great, man. man. We're we're shooting from the hip over here. So, and I want to get to your notes, and I got a couple notes, but I want you to take five minutes and just explain in layman's terms, nearsightedness. I would love to nearsightedness, farsightedness, and then I want to get into the qualification of that because you just in your last couple comments, doctor, you said you, you started talking about nearsightedness, and then you started talking about holding the paper far away. What what is what is the scientific definition or the medical definition of farsightedness? Well, that's hyperopia. And what that means is your eye is too short and the image is not being focused by the cornea and the lens on your retina. It's actually being focused somewhere uh, behind your retina. And so you need a plus power lens to bring that into focus. So that's farsightedness. Um, now, the opposite of that is nearsightedness. And, and nearsightedness is actually uh, quite a bit more common than farsightedness. Um, some people have very high levels of farsightedness, but there are many people that have extremely high levels of nearsightedness. So nearsightedness is more common. It's a little bit more functional because even if I'm a minus six, I can still hold something two or three inches away from my face and I can see it. Whereas if I'm a plus six, there's nowhere that I can hold it that I can see it. A plus six hyperope cannot see distance or near without spectacle correction of some sort. Um, so farsightedness is a little bit more debilitating. Nearsightedness is uh, more common. And the LASIK capability, uh, we do have some success with uh, hyperopic LASIK or LASIK for farsightedness. But what we're accomplishing with the laser in uh, the farsighted case is we're trying to steepen the cornea. And the algorithms and the uh, computer models that generate the algorithms that drive the laser, it's just not quite as precise and the outcome is not quite as predictable. So the hyperopic patients would not have the same 85% success rate of 2015. Um, it's still successful, but it's just a more difficult undertaking to try to correct farsightedness. Now with nearsightedness, the eye is too long and the image is being focused in front of the retina. And so to correct that, we need to flatten the cornea. And that's where the LASIK technology really stands out and really distinguishes itself. Wait a minute, I gotta, I gotta interrupt you for a second. So you're saying something as basic as nearsightedness and farsightedness, which I grew up with one of them. And I'll go over that. Farsightedness. farsightedness. You're saying that, that just going and getting a prescription of glasses isn't good enough now? I'm not saying that you're saying that. I'm asking, I'm trying to read into what you're saying. LASIK is gonna go in and improve farsightedness and nearsightedness in a, in, a, in a more advanced way that a prescription can't when you just put your specs on? Um, no, if that's what you heard, that's not really what I meant to say. Um, generally, when we are doing LASIK, we have sat with the patient and we have spun those dials on that fancy machine in the lane that's called a four opter. And what we've done is uh, we've determined what is your best corrected visual acuity. And so for LASIK, we take that best corrected visual acuity and that becomes our high watermark. That's what we're shooting for and, and a perfect outcome uh, will be 
you being able to see that best corrected visual acuity without any correction. So for a lot of patients, we get them to 2015 uh, with the four opter. And then I say to them, listen, I can't promise you 2020, but I'm shooting for perfection and I'm shooting for 2015. And then most of those people are gonna come out 2015. Now, it, it, with farsighted individuals, it's it's a little more difficult to uh, just realistically to achieve that same level of best corrected that they would with their glasses although it's much less of a hassle if you're not fumbling around for glasses or say you're a firefighter that works out in the wildland fires or you're a hunter or an angler there's a lot of environmental conditions that make glasses or even contacts just not tenable uh you know you, you, they become they become you know covered with dust or sweat what about or contacts? Well, even contacts um, are, 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 are useful in a lot of situations, but for those firefighters, the heat and the dust and the smoke brings a lot of them into me. One of the most common uh, populations that I see for LASIK are firefighters, both municipal and wildlands. And there's, there's a real utility to that you can see. So one thing that we'll get into today is athletics and sports and what we do in hunting. And I can't imagine, like, let, let's take UFC, for example, or boxing. You can't wear glasses. You probably can't even wear contacts in that. So this is something to where if you can't see punches coming at you, this is, I'm just trying to, like, figure out, like, when I was growing up, I, I was never told by an optometrist that, hey, let's go get surgery. Maybe I didn't take a, a take it to the level I needed to of going and see an ophthalmologist like yourself to say, hey, I might need surgery on my eyes because my vision has never been perfect. Right. It's and I don't know if everybody, if, if, if there is a such thing, I think there is, there is 2015 and that's gonna be one of my questions coming up. But is it, is it something to where the, the advancement in medicine and, and, and what you do in your specialized field is gotten it now to where you can get you can get qualified, you can go get cataracts, you can go get LASIK, you can go get one of these other surgeries, lens replacement, refractive lens replacement, or exchange. Is that, is that new technology that's come in the 90s and the 2000s? Or has this been, has this been something that was available to where a, a firefighter could get this done in the 70s and 80s instead of just getting a prescription glasses? Um, yeah, no, to answer that question, some of these procedures existed previously, like cataract surgery has been around, you know, a, a rudimentary crude form of cataract surgery was performed 3,000 years ago in uh, Egypt and India where they would take a sharp needle, have five guys put you in a headlock and uh, heat this needle up in a fire for sterilization. Put this needle through your peripheral cornea and push this lens, which is cloudy, back in your vitreous. That's called couching. So that's been around for 3,000 years. But moving forward to answer your question, um, LASIK was introduced in the U.S. in its early form in the mid-90s, and then it became FDA-approved, I believe, in 97. So nobody who, and, and even at that time, there were very few surgeons qualified and very few doctors able to perform it. So that's a, a, a field in and of itself that never existed prior to, say, 1997. Uh, in the U.S. and so and now of course as we talked about earlier the technology that's involved in that has improved exponentially and continues to do so. Um, for the first probably 15 years that I did LASIK uh, the laser well it would be less than that maybe 12 years the first 12 years that I did LASIK I've been doing LASIK for 20 years um, the the first 12 years uh, when I performed LASIK 
um, we did not have a laser to create the LASIK flap. We had to use what existed and that was a mechanical device that's called the microkeratome. And now that I don't use it anymore, uh, when I describe it, it sounds a little bit barbaric. So basically we take a device that includes a, a motorized head in which there is a razor blade like device and, and a motor that oscillates that razor blade. We would attach that to the eye with a high level of vacuum or suction, so much so that it supersedes the perfusion pressure of the retina and their vision completely goes out. Um, and then you articulate that manually across the cornea and then you backtrack and then you look and see what you have. So that was, that was the state of the technology. That was the best that we had until we developed the femtosecond lasers and those came on the market. So the first um, femtosecond laser that I was able to use for laser flap creation was called the intralase. And so when it first came out, and we're talking probably you know eight to 10 years ago now, um, there was this uh, uh, concept in the promotion of LASIK for all laser LASIK. And that meant that now we could create the flap with a laser, which was much less traumatic and much more precise, much more controlled. And thank goodness we have that. And now I use a more, an even more advanced, precise and gentle laser um, that's called the LensX laser to create my flaps. And these flaps are the most pristine, beautiful, and well-positioned, well-centered. We can control all the parameters, the depth, the size, the centration. And so the technology that is that we use day-to-day -day continues to improve steadily. And when, you, as far as your practice goes, and, you're, and you, you, we're on the subject of LASIK now, um, LASIK is a doctor's name, an ophthalmologist's name. Is that is that what it is? No, it stands for laser-assisted in situ keratomalusis. It's a big fancy medical name that's even hard for doctors to say. So that's not a guy's name. So <laughs> no, it's an acronym, and it's uh, yeah, it's what I just said, but it's a mouthful. So in your profession, and again, you don't have to answer this. Have you personally done anything in your studies or your research in your prof in in your qualification of what you've done. You've done 25,000 of these and 10,000 of these surgeries, cataracts and LASIK. Um, have you done anything personally, Dr. Matt Mills, to advance these surgeries? Is there something that I don't know that you've done in your career? I know I've known of some dentists that around this area, right. in Chico. have you done yeah, something? I, in your you career? know, I personally have not innovated to create anything. I did submit some patent, um, applications and, and began the patent process uh, years ago for an instrument that could have been used in cataract surgery, but only to find out that um, it, it was never brought to production, but that device already existed for another field. Um, so, you know, personally, I have not invented a technique. Um, uh, you know, along the way, I've, I've developed techniques that I used um, and, and continue to use, but basically what I've done is I've evaluated things that are introduced into the marketplace, keep my ear to the ground to always know what's in the pipeline, look and see what has been successful overseas or in other markets that will typically receive and be allowed to use technology and have access to technology before we do. And then assess it and see, is it going to benefit my patients? A lot of things are introduced that may have a great business model. A lot of them come with a lot of great marketing and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, all that really matters to me is this going to make my surgery more successful or safer for the patient. And so 
Um, that's what I've done, and I've stayed at the forefront. One thing, I, I joined a gentleman in practice here. I was recruited to come to Reno in 1999 by a doctor named Dr. Shonder. And Dr. Shonder, of course, is retired now. And he was, you know, at least a generation ahead of me in terms of medical career. But one thing I really appreciated and recognized him for was that he had stayed current. Whereas other people from the same generation had just continued to do what they already knew how to do. So, you know, when we go to college, it's not really what we learn, it's learning how to learn. And it's that lifelong commitment to learning and not being set in our ways that distinguishes those that are gonna to rise to the top of their field. And not just in medical, you're talking that- I'm that talking about in life. life. And, I, I and love what, you, what you do. I love what you just said. So, um, so you know, is there a, a, a Matt Mills laser out there? No, there is not. But, but I, I can do attest I, do to what you do said. I, do I do the most advanced form of all things cataract refractive? and now glaucoma surgery related? Yes, I do. And what I love about you and what I can attest to is that, and where I went with this word when you said qualify, you've, you've used qualification and qualify in, in a couple different instances, but the one that really was irking me was that I couldn't qualify for LASIK, and I think it was that mindset of these billboards. Everybody can get qualified for LASIK, doctor, and you, with the compassion that you have for your patients, you're saying, look, you're not qualified. Yeah. I'm not taking your freaking money building just to make you think you're gonna be able to see a duck flapping his wings better out in front of you 30 yards. Here's what you need yeah. and here's why. And to me, that is exactly where the evolution of medicine goes and where the, where the compromise is kicked out and you, and, you, and you stick to your ethics because I truly feel that there is no such thing as compromise in this situation because I can't imagine a life with blurred vision and then if you take it a step further, no vision, it just scares the living hell out of me. So when you say things like, no, you're not qualified, you don't, your money's no good here for that, here's what you need, that's what really got me of thinking like, man, this dude is like, this is a legit, legit surgery that this guy knows that I do not need. Yeah. And that, that to me is where I was going with the whole, the whole deal about being qualified is, what does it take and why didn't you qualify me and why sure. would somebody qualify me a, but Matt Mills doesn't? Well, that's a great question, Chad, and I'm going to go into that with you. You know, I talked about this really successful track record of outcomes that we have with LASIK and, um, and also we talked about continuing to learn as we go. Um, when LASIK was in, introduced back in 96, 97, there really was a track record from around the world. It was actually developed in South America and also available in Europe prior to its introduction in the US. So we knew manually how to do it, but we didn't have tens or, or of years of data of outcomes to know, well, how were we doing? How stable was this? And what sort of problems might we be causing? So over the years, the medical community, the ophthalmology community, we have determined that there are certain characteristics which are not obvious at, uh, on their face uh, that predispose someone to potential problems following LASIK. And so we've began to dial back a little bit on the number of people that are actually candidates due to these very sophisticated metrics of the cornea that show the cornea may be too flat for LASIK or the cornea may be too thin or the cornea may be a little bit unstable. Uh, we look for dry eye and we are very meticulous at measuring all of these parameters so that we're setting the stage for success. Um, you know, there are 
what we call absolute contraindications, which means a person absolutely cannot have a surgery. And then there are some relative contraindications, which like a person comes in and every other parameter is uh, a green light, but they have a little bit of dry eye. Well, we can actually treat dry eye, increase their tear production, and still then at that point advance them to a qualified LASIK candidate and have an excellent outcome. Um, So one of the things that I think sort of distinguishes um, our practices were very, very meticulous in that preoperative evaluation and very thorough in the way that we assess people. And that's part of the reason we have such good results. So surgeon patient confidentiality, it's important. Can you answer on a public forum of why I would not personally be qualified or, or why I was not? Is that mm-hmm. something sure, that you can I'll do? talk to you about that. Um, you know, LASIK um, is, as I mentioned, is very, very successful and precise in treating uh, nearsightedness, you have farsightedness, you have different levels of farsightedness, you have a little bit of astigmatism, uh, you have a little bit of amblyopia, which means one eye is not as strong as the other eye, one eye doesn't have quite the same uh, uh, potential for accurate vision as the other eye. And then you also have a, a, a pterygium, which is that growth on the conjunctiva that goes on the cornea. So. Um, and there were some other metrics of the cornea that uh, made us think that you were not going to be one of these people that comes out of there with perfect vision. And that's just, that's it. And you, did you study my file this morning? I did not. You remember all that? Of course, that you're my months, friend. That was months ago. That's, <laughs> yeah. But you're, okay, so I, I could sit here and, and keep, you know, going down this road of of my understanding of what you do but now as i hear you talking i'm just like this is this is one of those things to where i i figure i feel like it's so important for somebody to ingest this information and 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 figure out where they're at with their vision because i see a huge difference in what i do i shoot a shotgun for a living i got to shoot with both eyes open I see complete differences in different things, sunglasses on, sunglasses off, different lenses, different types of lenses that Oakley makes, things that I can shoot out of, different lighting conditions during the day, overcast skies, is it storming, is it sunny, is it high sun, is it low sun in the morning, is the sun behind me, is the sun on the edge of me? I start to think about all this, Dr. Matt Mills, because I'm like, I wanna be the best at what I do. I don't wanna be the best killer, but I wanna, I wanna, soak all of this in and now that i start to see it and i'm like i i i feel myself blinking more i feel myself kind of 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 always adjusting always trying to adjust my vision and i don't know if that's healthy i feel more headaches i want i I want to i just want to ask one more general question and then i want you to go off of what you want to talk about today because i asked you to come with some with some scientific stuff and some things that you do um with vision um, real quick, eye drops. Eye drops to me are a must when I'm in the field. A lot of dust, wind's blowing, a good waterfowl day, the wind's blowing. Hopefully it's at your back if you For know what sure. you're doing. Um, things get in your eyes. You might, might, Gunpowder might get in your eyes. Some, a corn stalk might get in there. Discomfort. What 
are eye drops designed to do? And if you had to tell me like, hey, when you're going out in the field, you want this style or this brand, and I know, and I know sure. you're not endorsed by an eye drop company, I'm just looking for your general opinion real quick sure. before we go into some more advanced stuff. Are eye drops worth having in a, in a duck hunter's blind bag? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, eye drops for lubrication or tear replacement um, are, are out there in droves. If you walked into Costco, or if you walked into CVS and you went to the eye drop aisle, you'd be overwhelmed. There's probably 90 different formulations among like 14 different companies. So, but basically you have drops that are lubricating drops similar to what you would find with contact solutions. So they're very liquid. And then all the way through various viscosities increasing all the way up to a gel. Um, the gel drops are good because you have to use them infrequently and they stay in the eye for a long time, but they make your vision blurry. So I would say that for what we're talking about, just the simple refresh or sustain, which are just sort of, you know, commonplace eye lubricating drops would work just fine. Then they have some that are a little bit higher viscosity. And, you know, if somebody actually is dealing with symptomatic dry eye, a slightly higher viscosity eye drop um, would also probably, you know, uh, help. But uh, is it a good idea to keep some eye drops around? Absolutely, because nothing's more aggravating. The, the cornea is one of the most highly innervated structures in the body, so a tiny grain of sand in your eye sends as much stimulation to your brain as you know, a nail in your foot. Yeah, bad, bad discomfort. <laughs> last, last general question is the, the correlation between rest and sleep and vision. Is it affect vision at all? when the brain is not getting the ample amount of sleep. That is a great point. And I have not had this discussion with anybody, but the importance of sleep is being um, recognized more and more as we go. Um, there's, there's actually a book that's on my reading list and it's called Why We Sleep. But a link has been uh, uh, established recently between chronic sleep deprivation throughout your lifetime and dementia, Alzheimer's, and things like that. So there is a lot of processing that's going on in our brain throughout the day, and then there's a different type of processing that goes on when we sleep at night, particularly uh, rapid eye movement or REM sleep. And I personally have started going to bed earlier just because I know that there, over the course of your life, there there's a, real consequences to sleep deprivation. Now, does that affect your vision in your brain? So this is interesting, and there's a great tie-in here, Chad. Um, the, the brain, we know, is obviously the, the nerve center, and it controls everything uh, that we do. Um, within the brain, of all of the circuitry, more than 50% of the circuitry of the brain is involved in vision and vision processing. Think about that. Wow. I have no idea when I ask this question. I just know that when I don't sleep good, yeah. I don't see good, especially early in the morning. Yeah. So, you know, I don't think there's a lot of scientific studies that I can point to that say sleep deprivation affects your vision, but certainly um, there is eye fatigue for people that spend long hours at the computer or long hours out in the field. Um, and, and certainly our brain is um, very, very much involved in vision and in many ways more than half of uh, the function and the processing power of our brain is either dedicated to vision or involved in vision 
there are more than 40 separate anatomical areas in the brain that are involved in vision. So certainly sleep, adequate sleep is going to improve your ability to process. And that's going to affect everything from decision-making, reaction time, um, you know, species identification on down the line. And it's not your, it's not your area of expertise, but you are interested in the, this, I don't know, is it called the science of sleep? I, I'm very interested in it too, because it's amazing the difference in performance of, of everything that I do. And I'm not mm-hmm. telling anybody anything they don't want to know. You want to go out and party <laughs> till three in the morning and have to get up at 5.15 at duck camp, you're not going to feel as good. You're not going to see as good. You're not going to shoot as good. There's some guys that can keep that up for a while. Sure. But I, I think that the science of sleep is very important. But I, as it attributes to my vision, I've seen differences where when sure. yes, yesterday I woke up and it, I had a great REM night, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay? and. This morning I woke up and I didn't. I was right. up late last night. I was I had my wheels turning, my type A personality going. Couldn't shut it down. Shit, Probably drank too much caffeine in the morning. Yeah. And 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 you know, I could it's hard for me to shut things off. Yeah. But I see how it affects my what you're talking about, the right. responses of, of of all of those things going on in the brain. Yeah. Hey Chad, um before we move on too much more into sort of the scientific um aspects of vision um just going back to your question to me earlier about your lasik and and not being qualified um so you know part of that discussion was okay you're not an ideal lasik candidate and i didn't think it was realistic that we're going to come out with 2020 or 2015 vision for that but that doesn't mean we can't help you and so at that point we i made the determination that most likely a lens-based surgery was going to be the answer for you. And whether it's now or sometime in the future, I felt like we could go in there and remove your lens and replace it with another lens that in one eye would hopefully give you distance and near in the other eye that has astigmatism. We now have lenses that can correct the astigmatism and give you distance and near. So that goes back to your eye fatigue question right now your eyes are having to work really hard and of course the older we get the less flexible and compliant the lens is so every time you're focusing on something you know your eyes are actually doing work and and so that affects your your performance and that that surgery would be the one that we referred to earlier as the lens retractive exchange yeah refractive lens exchange or possibly by this time it's actually been a couple years chad since you were in to see me we might actually be looking at uh, a cataract surgery. So my, uh, the best bet is to get re, do I gotta go through the entire thing again? <laughs> well, because if I say it was, yes, it was you're very, not gonna come. No, no, I want to come, I have to I'm do it. I'm just kidding. No, you won't have to go through all of that uh, ever again at one sitting. We can sort of pick up where we left off and we would sort of uh, focus and in, in, in detail the tests that we need in a little bit different direction. Okay, so now you're starting to talk about refractive, mm-hmm. not retractive, refractive. Re- uh, refractive lens extraction or refractive lens exchange. That procedure is known by several terms. Some, some doctors refer to it as clear lens extraction. Like, well, if, you know, 
we, we are taking a lens out, but we also have to put a lens in. So that's why for me, I, I, I prefer the term. It's just semantics, refractive lens exchange. You know the test when you're sitting in your office and you're sitting in front of me and you're saying, all right, tell me this, and you're exchanging glass lenses in mm -hmm. front of my eyes, and then you turn this eye off and you, go and you start. Right, that's it, called a refraction. And is that, that what you're doing? Is that, four -opter. So that, that lens is kind of what you're gonna do to my eye? You're just gonna pull one out and then put another, slide another one in? Um, yeah, it's sort of analogous to that. The, the, the bottom line answer to your question, you've hit on the concept correctly, and that is, the lens that you were born with was not exactly the right power. And so you've been farsighted your whole life. When we're young and when we're in our childhood, we can accommodate six, eight, 10 diopters. You ever see a child sitting one foot away from the TV? It's because they can see it comfortably. Um, and it's not good, we need to back them up. But um, you know, when somebody's farsighted, they are having to accommodate uh, and exert that 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 ciliary muscle 24 7 365 anytime they're awake because they're having to focus to overcome the farsightedness really yeah so when you start talking about the lens exchange and before you were throwing around numbers of of what you've seen as results of the lasik and as mm -hmm. the cataract sure. of when you do what what is the best case scenario for somebody like me with the testing that you got on me uh, again we'd go back to what is your best corrective visual acuity prior to the surgery and then accounting for the level of cataract formation so if you were to come see me next week and we spun those dials and we got 2020 in both eyes then we would do a refractive lens exchange and we would expect and hope to achieve 2020 um now, if we spin those dials and we can only get you to 2030 and we do a glare test and the glare shows the cataracts are decreasing your vision down to the 2100 level, then we'd be looking at a cataract surgery, but we'd still be shooting for 2020. Um, and, you know, in some cases, in a lot of cases, we achieve that. And in some cases, we can achieve better. Um, through both surgeries? Through both surgeries. And But, but again, I could not promise a guarantee 2020. Uh, in any could you promise or guarantee an improvement yes that we could do now now listen in medicine now just like going back to your discussion about the doctors and the billboards we are actually not allowed to guarantee it's medicine surgery is surgery surgery by nature is unpredictable now some of these outfits will say okay we're going to give you a lifetime guarantee on your LASIK but it comes with some catches and some caveats. And if you miss an appointment or anything like that, it goes by the wayside. Um, that's also not realistic. People's eyes will change over the course of their life. So if I, you know, and I have patients I did LASIK on 20 years ago that are still doing fine, but I have patients who I did LASIK on 10 years ago and then subsequently developed cataracts. And now we've had to also go back and do cataract surgery. So um, I can guarantee you that I will do my best for you to see your best. So we're in a betting town though. If you can't guarantee me, Doc, <laughs> would you be a betting man and say you would bet that you would improve my vision? Absolutely. Every <laughs> every time I sit down and undertake to violate somebody's eye surgically, um, I'm betting on myself. What is, you know what I do for, you've been out in the field with us. You, you're I a hunter, sure have. You, you believe in the outdoors, you, we don't, we, we don't need to go into the culture of hunting. It's important to me. It's important to you. It's important mm -hmm. to our, to what we do and in, in, into our livelihood. 
vision's so important when you live in the outdoors. It's it's important in all aspects of life. And that's really why I wanted to have this conversation with you because as I grow into my 40s, it's never been more important to me to not miss anything. Remember that Steven Tyler song, I don't want to miss a thing that Aerosmith yeah, did and Mark Chestnut I did? I sure do. I just don't want to miss anything. And I feel like I am. Right. I feel like well, I... Well, you know, you're an astute observer of uh, the things around you and that's what's allowed you to accomplish the things that you have and both, you know, what you accomplish out in nature and interacting with animals, but also just in business and, and uh, the... Um, the, the successful organization that you're building, which is very impressive. So um, if your observation is that you sense a change and a deterioration, I will tell you that you are correct. And when you, when you consider the information that you have given me mm-hmm. and you go home and you process that and I go my way and I process it and then time goes by and you don't see me take your advice, does it piss you off? Does it irritate you? Does it make you go belding? What the hell? hell? No, here, Chad, listen. Um, I don't want it to be to where in 10 years you see me to dinner and go, I told you so, dude. I I told you so. Well, first of all, fortunately, I did not identify any progressive, permanent vision-threatening diseases, right? If I told you, I think you have glaucoma and you disappeared and didn't come back for five years and you were half blind, I would be pissed. And I gotta tell you, unfortunately, that happens in this day and age with everything that with all the access to information and all the educational resources out there i will still occasionally have a patient and i say listen i'm beginning to see diabetic changes in your retina you need to see a doctor and get checked for diabetes and you also need to come back here so we can monitor and treat this and then i might not ever see them again chad people do sometimes just live in a world of denial and uh when if you have a progressive eye disease like glaucoma, diabetes, macular degeneration, some of the damage that happens in those diseases is irreversible. So, you know, please, if you're out there and you're hearing this and it's been on your to-do list to get back in and see your eye doctor, make that happen. Make that a priority. Have to. Yeah. So important. Okay. Get, get, throw at me what you, you, you were going to get into some of the Sure. Let's just talk about, let's talk about, you know, we could sort of nerd out and go into rods and cones and the pathways in the brain and all that stuff. And we can do that, but I don't know how much benefit your listeners would have from that. So let's get more down to sort of the brass tacks of where the rubber meets the road when we're interacting with our environment. You know, what we're, what we're sort of geared to on this podcast is the hunting and outdoorsman environment, anglers, hunters, hikers, people that are out and about, but this would apply to sort of all pursuits um, in life. So what I did was I sat down, I just thought about, well, what are the most important aspects of our vision? What are the things that we can measure and what are the things that might get worse over time? And what are maybe some of the things that we could improve? So I came up with what I think are 10 aspects of vision that are gonna impact our performance, whether it's sports, whether it's a tennis court or a racquetball court or a basketball court, the football field your softball league or chasing chucker up the hill. So the, the, the first and foremost is visual acuity. And that is how well can you see? Can you resolve something a tiny speck? Can you see a chucker scrambling around in some gray rocks, 250 feet above you on this shale mountainside? So visual acuity is super important. And for the most part, people are either born with good visual acuity or they go to the optometrist, they get some glasses and contacts, and that takes care of it. 
Um, if your visual acuity is not good, you're already setting yourself back in every other one of these departments that we're going to talk about next. Is acuity uh, a form of the word accuracy? Um, it, you know, it, it's it's related. I'm sure they have sort of a common, you know, Latin derivation. But uh, acuity is, uh, in this instance, it's the ability to resolve uh, a tiny objects presented in your visual field. So you know how the uh, the letters on the eye chart get progressively smaller? It requires a higher acuity to see those smaller letters. So my acuity is not good. No, you're, you're, it's in, in one eye, it's better than the other. And I think that's what carries you. And uh, in both of your eyes, the last time we looked at you, it was correctable, okay? And um, in neither eye was it terrible. It wasn't bad. You, you, you wouldn't be able to do what you do if you had bad vision. Um, so for visual acuity, you know, we have glasses and we have contacts and that's super important. Um, it's also important that we maintain what God gave us and that is we need to protect our eyes. It's very important that we wear UV protecting sunglasses when we're outside because the UV light that comes from our environment is uh, damaging to the eyes. It promotes cataracts and it promotes macular degeneration. Um, fortunately, I, I know that you're affiliated with Oakley and I've always been a huge Oakley fan. We have a number of pairs of Oakley glasses right here in front of us on our table. Um, they have developed a type of lens. It's called Plutonite. Plutonite is their proprietary name that they have for the lenses that they manufacture for all of their glasses. And polycarbonate is impact resistant. And so all um, glasses, especially used in hunting, should be impact resistant. Um, and polycarbonate is shatterproof. It can even in, absorb a, a direct shot from a shotgun in many cases without being penetrated or shattered. But plutonite is a specially purified form of polycarbonate, which makes it clearer and also 100% UV. So it's important that we protect our eyes, both from, from UV and from trauma. Um, so the, the next aspect is just reaction time. When you see something, how long does it take for you to react? And there's a lot of processing that goes on. From the image entering your eye and encountering your photoreceptors in your retina, traveling through numerous circuits within your brain, and then going back to your spinal cord and, and down to your body so that you can react to make a decision that you wanna take this or sh pursue this, or maybe you need to run from this object that's in front of you. All of that happens in about 20 milliseconds. Um, it's hard to believe. 20 milliseconds. Yes. No way. And in that time span, you are also getting a feedback loop that allows your eyes to maintain fixation on that target, right? Because you're not going to be static. You're going to be moving or it's going to be moving and the both of you could be moving. And so in order for you to continue to focus on that, there's a feedback mechanism that goes through your brainstem and back to the muscles that control the position of your eyes. Wow. So you're, this is, you're talking reactionary time now. Is it, that associates with what we do in the field? Sure, of course. That, you know, that pheasant jumps up you know, in front of you or behind you, and you, you have a, a fair amount of time in that situation. But let's say a chucker comes over flying 45 miles an hour and comes over the crest of something. He's going to be gone. He's going to be by you in less than a second. And then there's the idea of a duck hunter or a chucker hunter or a pheasant hunter where there's multiple targets. Right. You have to be able to say, that's a hen, that's a drake. So that's one instance, right? Right. All this happens in different parts of the brain, Chad. It's an amazing system. It, it truly is. So and then you got to shoot this one and then get on this you one. You have to make those And do decisions. it all again real quick. That's right. And so 
when the light comes into your eye, goes through your photoreceptors, it goes into your optic nerve, it goes back through uh, this place called the chiasm where the optic nerves intersect, then it goes through something called the lateral geniculate uh, nucleus, and then it goes back to your uh, parietal lobe. Well, for, well, first it goes to your occipital lobe. In your occipital lobe, which is the visual cortex, that's where sort of the image is, is uh, um, established inside your brain. That information goes to your parietal lobe, and that's where you decide and you determine where this object is. How far away is it? How fast is it moving? Which direction is it moving? That happens in your parietal lobe. Um, then that information goes to your temporal lobe, and your temporal lobe is where you decide, well, what is that? Is that a canvas back? Is that a teal? Is that a mallard? Do I wanna shoot that? Then that goes to your frontal lobe. Your frontal lobe is where you make that decision. You say, oh yeah, I want this one. And this one is closer than this one, so I'm gonna try to shoot this one first. Um, and so all of that happens, and then that has to send a signal to your spinal cord to go out to your muscles to shoulder your uh, shotgun and pull the trigger. How amazing is the human body? Amazing. And the most amazing part is that it can be repaired in a timely manner too. If something does go wrong with your vision or you, the way that the body repairs itself is amazing to me too. So when you're yeah. sitting there telling me all that, I'm like, if something went wrong, we could, our body is built to, it's so uh, um, adaptive, adaptive that and, and, and being able to, I, I don't, my uh, vocabulary regenerate. Yes. It's like, it's amazing to me that you can, that it, it might not happen this time, but then all of a sudden it can regroup and be like, all right, it's ready to go this time. Yeah. I don't, it's, 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 haven't we all had those days when you're out in the field and you're just locked in and everything that is all you, 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 you shoot, you, you hit. And you have other days where how in the world did I miss that? And yeah, there's a lot to human performance. There's multiple levels of both conscious and subconscious. Yeah, I want to make sure that my comment wasn't taken wrong is that I'm not talking about the body gets sick and it can heal itself. That's another whole other subject. I'm talking about what you're saying is like it can repair itself so quick and regroup and, and, and it might take 24 hours to be back in the zone. But these ducks come in and you're like, man, I'm shoot or let's take a sporting clay course. I'm, I can't hit one. I can't hit one. We were shooting with this girl a couple weeks ago. My brother made one comment to her and she never missed again. It was like that one little thing that he said. One was little like, uh, swing thought, yeah, uh, and, if and you she will. adapted and, yeah. and boom, it was like, yeah. it was like she'd shot a thousand targets when it was her first day ever shooting a shotgun. That's cool. So, so you know what I'm saying? It's like the bot, the human body and what you're saying. And then what was the time? 20. It's like 20 to 40 milliseconds. And how fast is a millisecond? Uh, a one thousandth of a second, right? Yes, I think so. Twenty, so it's it, twenty. Or, of those. Is it? Hmm, you know, I should know that. I don't think it would be a millionth of a second. That's too fast. So we're saying we're asking, which you are Google pretty much. <laughs> How fast is a millisecond? How fast is that? One is one thousandth a of a second, milli or is that? Is a millisecond. Let's put it this way, Chad. It's super fast. <laughs> yeah, it's is a millisecond, a thousandth of a second. Yeah, you were right. Yeah, good job. Yeah. So yeah, so yeah. So you're saying that all of that happens from the back, the rear lobe to the frontal lobe to the spinal cord, and all of that in a thousandth of a second. Yeah. Which a second is. Boom. Yeah. No. One thousand one. One thousand one. Yeah. So it's one thousandth of that. Yeah. What's well, twenty? thousandths of that 21,000 how yeah. amazing is that so that'd be like one wouldn't that be one five hundredth 
I think, or 150. Just stop. You're way too small. <laughs> You're making me look dumb. Okay. Anyhow, um, so other things that are happening, and we've kind of touched on these through this discussion, is pattern recognition or object identification, uh, movement recognition. I've always had good visual acuity, although I'm getting older too. It's not what it once was. Um, but I've hunted with guys who are able to see game before I am. And I have figured out there are people that can detect patterns better than others. And there are people who can detect movement better than others. And that's documented. So those are a couple aspects. One is depth perception and stereo vision. Yes. It's real important that there's a very elaborate system inside our brain that integrates the images between our two eyes. And that gives us the ability to have stereo vision and depth perception. So that's an important thing. Um, contrast sensitivity is an important aspect of vision. And that's one that's hard to explain and hard to measure. Uh, the analogy that I use or the example that I use with patients when, when I'm in the office is, let's say you're driving at night, it's dark, it's an unlit intersection. It's raining and someone is crossing the street wearing black clothes. Can you see them? If you can, that's contrast sensitivity. So contrast it's the ability to distinguish subtle uh, differences in, uh, in, in the environment. So contrast sensitivity is very important. Color vision. Color vision is important. Thing. I was just going to ask you what colorblind means in color vision. I, I, I wanted that's to a big go, thing in duck hunting. I, it's a huge thing. So first of all, I want to give you a fun fact. And I came across this this week. You and I have always been taught, well, we see in color. And we actually, if, you're, if we're healthy and normal, we see in three colors, that's called trichromat or trichromatic. Um, but, and we're told that animals only see in black and white, right? You've heard that. Oh yeah. You've said that. Oh, I've yeah, said that. I've said it. <laughs> so what I found out this week is that scientists, and don't ask me how they would know this, but scientists have determined that certain animals, certain predator animals actually do see colors. And the example that I came across is a bird of prey. It's the Harris hawk. The Harris hawk actually has been proven to be able to distinguish colors. And as a predator, uh, trying to identify prey from a, on the ground from a great distance, that's going to be a huge advantage. And that Harris hawk is a fascinating species. The uh, pack hunting behavior that they exhibit is fascinating. They have different tactics that they use on different types of prey. And one of my favorite is that they'll catch a rabbit out in the open. Well, rabbits are pretty good at running and they will determine where that rabbit's burrow is so that the next time they will already have two or three by the burrow when they come out overhead he runs straight to the other guys really then yeah. they have other animals that are going to have to run a further distance and the harris hawk will hunt in like teams of six or seven and it's like a relay one will pressure the animal while five or six others will fly ahead and rest and so that somebody is always fresh and on the chase until this animal tires out and they get them. Do they share them? Yeah, they do. Really? They cooperate. They cooperate down <laughs> and, to the freaking last But, but I'm sure the big ones eat first. <laughs> Anyhow, so color vision is super important for us and what we do. Um, color blindness is actually not uncommon. 8% of males in the world are colorblind and less than 1% of women. So women always know that they're superior to us. In, in this case, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so what but, is colorblindness? Uh, so colorblindness is there, there are three types of uh, cones. Uh, rods and cones are the photoreceptors in your eye. The, the rods are actually 
uh, duochromatic. They only see in black and white or green and white. So the rods do not perceive colors, but that's what gives our, our, our peripheral vision. And it's also what gives us our low light vision. If we're trying to navigate a dark environment, dusk or dawn, or the, we're in the house and the lights are off, we see with our rods. Um, but our cones are what give us our acuity and also our color perception. So there's three different types of cones. Cones for red, cones for blue, and cones for green or yellow. Um, depends on who you read, some say green, some say yellow. So generally what happens, and this is an X chromosome trait, so that's why men only have one uh, you know, X chromosome. So if it's transmitted to the men on the X chromosome, they will have color blindness. Women have two X chromosomes, so if they have it on one and don't have it on the other, they won't be colorblind, but they will be able to pass that on. Um, so if you're missing, say for example, uh, the, the red um, uh, photoreceptors, then you're gonna have the sort of the classic, most common red-green colorblindness, and that's the most common. Um, so it's not that those people can't perceive any colors, and, and it is true that they will confuse the two colors because there's blue, yellow, there's red, green, and then there's kind of purple, yellow, uh, which is less common. Um, and, and you do confuse those, but it also distorts the rest of the spectrum. Um, there are glasses that are made with special tents that will redistribute the spectrum of light and simulate colored vision for those people. So that's really an exciting science. Um, and this is really exciting. Um, this doesn't apply to humans just yet, but recently they have used genetic therapy to reverse and cure inherited color blindness in monkeys. And, and, and sort of one other important aspect of that is these were adult monkeys who had grown up with it because the thinking was at one time that if you didn't treat that in infancy, even though you were then able through genetic therapy to introduce these other um, sensitive cones that as an adult, you wouldn't be able to process it. Well, they've proven that these adult monkeys who have been born colorblind, grown to maturity in adulthood, colorblind, and they do gene therapy on their retinas and they can now see trichromatic three colors. I don't want you to think this is a dumb question because everything you just said is amazing to me when you talk about color blindness and you talk about the, the different color combinations, the reds and the, the blues and the greens and everything, is there ever been a case? And I, and it's a dumb question. Maybe is there ever been a case where a human being only sees in black and white? Yes, there is another condition and this one is really much less frequent. So, you know, we said that this in common hereditary color blindness is 8% of the male population worldwide. Actually, it might be higher in certain ethnic groups and, and lower in others, but generally it's, it's thought to be 8%. So there's another type of um, really more devastating uh, color blindness that's called achromatopsia. And I'm not sure so much how that's inherited or if it is a mutation, um, but those people actually do see in black and white. But that's like, that's like, in terms of a percentage, it's 0.000001% of the population. Really, really odd. Yeah. I've actually it. never seen one in my career. And I've seen lots of patients. Lots of patients. Okay, I just got a quick question real quick that just came up about what we do. Yesterday I was, I was with my daughter and she said, Daddy, let's have a blinking contest. 
A staring contest. A staring contest. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> Should be, in my opinion, in my case. <laughs> Why can some people go longer time frequencies without blinking and why do some people consistently blink and does that affect that processing that we touched on when we're trying to pick out a target and, and adapt to that and, and move on to the next one well first of all chad we can't gloss over who won you or your daughter she smokes me she smokes me and brags about <laughs> i knew it. that i just wanted to hear you say it yeah she smokes me um yeah no the blink rate um it varies from person to person um, you know, if a person has decreased tear production, they're going to need to blink more. The purpose of the blink is to redistribute the tears on the surface of the eye and also to sort of sweep away those impurities in the environment like dust particles and smoke particles and things like that. So um, some people blink just naturally more often than others. Um, if a person has a very robust tear film and tear production, they will probably blink less. If somebody has some sort of eye problem that makes their vision blurry, they're gonna blink more because right after we blink is when we have our clearest vision. Um, what else? Oh, um, one thing about blink rate, we have sort of our own natural blink rate. And sometimes uh, a term that you hear sort of used in the lay press and the lay media right now is computer vision syndrome. And it's a, it's a sense of eye strain that people get when they work on the computer for long periods of time. And you know, people in every industry, you know, we talked about lawyers, but you know, pretty much anybody, bankers, lawyers, doctors, everybody, yourself, you know, you're involved with all your, uh, you know, media production and hunting logistics and everything. And I know a lot of that takes place on the computer. So this is a result of two things. One is you do actually fatigue your ciliary muscle when you're sitting there focusing on things. And two, you can develop dry eye, but this is sort of the psychological part of it Chad, it's established that when we stare at a screen, particularly a computer screen, our blink rate goes down by like 60%. So let's say that a normal person is gonna blink 15 times in a minute. Well, you sit there and stare at your computer, now you're only gonna blink five times in a minute. And that's going to cause problems with your cornea. Um, not only your vision, but your cornea. So, so. Then, in, so then with that being said, what I just wrote down while you're talking is, how detrimental in today's society with the use of these smaller screens in a computer on an iPhone. Yeah. And it's no secret of we're addicted to these. We're things. addicted. And now kids that are six and seven are constantly on these. How right. devastating is this to the long-term vision of a kid that's already doing this? Because when I was six and seven, I wasn't looking at a four-inch screen. You were not. I wasn't looking at a computer screen. Nope. I got to watch TV once in a while. You were I was out in the outside. backyard with a slingshot. Exactly. But now in today's society, how detrimental is this to the future of, of the world's vision? I, I, you know, I, I, I think the answer to that question is that it remains to be seen. Um, you know, I think that the societal impacts of people losing the ability to relate and interact is, is greater than the impact on vision. And it's, love, and it's, it, it's hilarious when you go to a restaurant and you'll see a family of four people and there's no conversation. There are four individuals looking at their phone. My buddy Drake White has a line in his phone. He says, nobody's talking, but we're all on our phone. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's what America is. That's it's, what that, that, it is. I talk to people about jargon and why I named the right, call company right. jargon. But anyway, so I, that, I, so I, I love that you said did. Um, but um, yeah, so it, it, it's uh, in terms of the vision, 
you know, when, when we go through medical training, there are certain tenets that are taught to us. And, and, and for the most part, we absorb those and we believe those. We kind of accept them on faith. If many of them have been, you know, proven scientifically, but sometimes you have to reevaluate them. And so one, one thing is, is there a tendency for people who read a lot or spend a lot of time on a phone, especially very close, to any type of screen, very close to their eyes? And the question becomes, it, is that going to make that person become nearsighted? So the answer to that is that by the textbook, no. You know, I don't know that that's ever been proven. I don't know that there's any study that can say that. But anecdotally, I can tell you that I know dozens of people who tell me this story. I always had perfect vision. I went to law school. I read, I studied 18 hours a day, and I became three, four diopters nearsighted. Um, when you have a lot of those anecdotal stories, it starts to make you wonder, you know, is there some truth to that? So according to our textbooks, I would say no, but according to stories that now, now there is a natural history of nearsightedness. People that become nearsighted in early childhood tend to become more nearsighted in adolescence. And then it, and then in young adulthood, it tends to stabilize. Are we going to see in the next 10 or 15 years a, a rash of nearsightedness? I, I don't know. Only time will tell. Personally, and I'm talking me, I'm not making an assumption of any other individuals. I'm talking about me. I feel that it's attributed to a weaker vision of my, the time I've spent on one of these the last 60 yeah. months of my life. I, I, I'm not sure you know, that there is a scientific basis to that, but perhaps there is. And I don't think that there probably isn't. You would know yeah. if there was probably, yeah. but to me, it seems that if you're playing a game or you're reading that text and you're constantly reading emails and you're constantly reading instant messages, whatever it is, looking up something on Google, mm -hmm. reading a news report, it just seems to me that the, the, the it's a lot more visual now the way people are getting their content. Whereas before you would turn on the radio and you'd listen to a news report or you would watch a bigger screen TV and watch right. the six o'clock news yeah. to where it's now, it's just nonstop and your eyes are always adjusting to that smaller screen. Yeah. And then when you pull your head away from it, can it adjust to the rest it of the world? It takes longer, doesn't it? I think, I, yeah. I don't know, I think that it does. But go on with your list. Did you get through all 10? Uh, no, the next one is hand-eye coordination. And, you know, that goes back to that whole process we went through. And of all the things I think that we um, have, have talked about, I think that this is one that would be most responsive to practice, right? You know, the reason we go out to shoot our sporting clays is we want to get better in the field. And the reason my kid's going to, you know, uh, you know, he's going to have a thousand batting practice pitches thrown at him in the next four years is because they want him to get better at hitting the ball. Um, so... That's an important one that puts it all together. Tracking, that is the ability to maintain focus on a, a moving target. That's an important one. And also peripheral vision or peripheral awareness. Um, so that's all 10 of them. Um, most of us have sort of inherent qualities and inherent capabilities. And some of us are really good at reaction time. And some of us can are the first ones to see that, that duck coming up off the horizon. Um, and then and some of us may not have as good a visual acuity or may not have the same reaction time or may not have the same hand-eye coordination, but the question becomes, can we make it better? And so that brings up this concept of vision training. So there's really two categories of vision training. 
there's a, a, a type of vision training that is offered to patients who have medical problems, primarily children who are born with a lazy eye or crossed eyes or one eye that deviates, or maybe they don't have good vision in one eye and they have good vision in the other. Can they balance that out? So that form of vision training is more on the medical side, and that's done by a certain group of uh, practitioners. And, and that's not something we specialize in, but I have seen some incredible results, especially on treating kids with amblyopia. Um, but then there's another uh, an entire arena of vision training that's sports vision training. So sports specific or sports in general vision training. And um, so, yeah, I knew you would like that. Yeah, I really so do. that is a field that's been around for a long time, uh, you know, probably 45, 50 years, but it's not real well established and it is still um, gaining momentum and gaining traction. I, I don't know if you know this or not, Every single major professional sports league in the U.S. right now is either utilizing or investigating forms of sports vision training. Probably the most prominent, well-recognized, and well-documented um, uh, um, athlete that uses uh, sports vision training is Steph Curry, Golden State Warriors, uh, a generational talent. Um, you know, Hall of Fame has changed the game by his shooting prowess and his ball handling and his ability to see the court. So um, if you go online, you can actually watch him do these drills. So I believe the unit that he uses is called FitLight. And obviously this is something that would be in a facility. It wouldn't be something you would get and bring it to your house, but um, it would be in a doctor's office or a training facility. But basically the, the video I saw that just blew me away is he's dribbling a ball and he's in a crouch, he's in a crouch stance dribbling a ball, and he's a foot away from a wall. And this wall has blinking lights, and he has to respond to these blinking lights while dribbling the ball, or two balls, no, just kidding. So he's dribbling a ball, and uh, a light will blink, and he has to touch that light. But another light will blink, and if it's a different color, he has to switch hands and then touch it. And then another one will blink, and if it's a certain color, he has to touch it with that hand and then change dribble. And then somebody will hold up fingers in the periphery and he has to keep looking straight ahead and tell how many fingers. And he's doing all this while dribbling a basketball. Periphery, peripheral visitor to the side. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So it's, it's an amazing, amazing system. And, you know, would he be as good as he is without it? You know, we'll never know because he uses it. But when you watch him handle the ball and you say, gee whiz, his ball handling looks unconscious. There's a reason why. So there is something to this sports vision training. And, you know, for your listeners that may be like, well, I want to get interested in that, but I can't afford to go and train with the Golden State Warriors or in their facility or with their trainers. Um, I, I did find this one uh, website that's called NeuroTracker. And uh, it's not just visual performance, but they also uh, quantify and help you improve your cognitive performance. So it's your thinking and your reaction time. And that one appeared to be something that you could interface with on your computer uh, online. And that one is used by uh, the Atlanta Falcons, the Oakland A's, and USA Soccer. And what was the name uh, of it it's, again? It's called NeuroTracker. N-E-U-R-O? Yeah, NeuroTracker. I, I haven't used it, um, but I found that one to be somewhat compelling in, in what I did see. You just brought up a word there that I was going to ask you about real quick before okay. you go on to your next one. Mm -hmm. Cognitive thinking. Yeah. What is, when you, I, 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 I work with this unit called the smart fit. Have you heard of this? I have not. It's, um, it's seven 
squares that are placed in different spaces and within that square that thing's made out of rubber and, and different materials and then in the middle of that is a smaller square that's a digital screen and on that screen you can produce through software and in these programs um happy faces smiley faces uh depressed faces sad faces frowns you can do numbers you can do colors so now when you said this stuff through, through your brain no in the screen it comes on but how how are you producing that image so the 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 software is uh, applying these images to the screen so one of the drills is like what you just brought up with steph curry you're sitting there and you could have pool noodles shorter pool noodles you know like the noodles that you would have mm-hmm, in a swimming mm-hmm, pool mm-hmm. or you can use your hand and it, you have to touch the happy face well every other one of the squares is going to be different of a frown or a or a upside down whatever it is right. and there's one happy face okay you got to be able to so boom, it's, hit the it's happy a face. dynamic fast moving fast changing yeah. target that you have to interact with yes and then it can change numbers to where you have to hit the two every other number is different and now your brain has to go to all different these squares and pick up that two real quick through your vision and hit that if you hit another one you get docked a point and you're, you're out already, of the game. you're already doing it man so so this is called smart fit and then what you do is you mix it in with burpees to where you got to hit a burpee like and he's doing hands. and now you got to now you take cones one through 12 numbered and you put them in un, un they're not chronological order behind you so after you find your first smile face you have to turn around and find the number one and now your brain and your vision is doing something else right so that's all part of my training to be a better duck hunter and be able to, to oh, i love it you you're already doing some of these things in in not just the visual but the the cognitive and yeah. the, and the physical matt pandola has pandola training here in town he's he's, he's heard my, of that name he's strong and he and he's is an, that where you're doing this yes and he's an owner in smart fit but he's got it set up in his gym doctor and when i do it i'm sitting there going i and listen i'm not bragging but i'm competing i'm 44 years old i'm competing and consistently beating 18 to 21 24 year old athletes some of them are professional athletes some of them are ncaa athletes junior college and high school and I'm com- and I'm consistently competing with them and staying at their level and then I go to read a freaking receipt to sign a tip at the flowing tide and, and I you can't, can't do it. Read it. That's what's blowing my mind about this vision is that that cognitive well, vision. First of all, can- maybe you missed your calling and we got to backtrack and maybe get you in baseball. Maybe, you know, single A, double A still calling. God, I wish I could. I wish I could. But you know what I mean? Is like when I hear that yeah. Steph Curry deal, this, I don't know if this is more of a vision, bit, but it kind of yeah. seems like the same well, reaction. It's both. It's physical So what is the visual. definition of cognitive thinking? Well, you know, cognitive thinking is the processing. Okay. It's the decision making. It's the understanding. It's the differentiating. Like, you know, you're presented with those targets and one's a uh, neutral and one's a smile well you got to decide and go for that that's cognitive that's cognitive yeah and then you mix in speed right and then you mix in what you said with eye hand coordination yeah and then you become the world's greatest ping pong player in the world which is my goal that will i think you keep doing that thing and you're going to get there a ping pong is a huge thing of everything that you've done and talked about you you gotta have it is i should be you know i have a ping pong table why don't i just use that we play here so much i love it that's cool i love it hey i I did want to continue on on the the theme on the theme of vision training and sports vision training and i think you're going to particularly find this one interesting so i'm doing a little prep for our podcast today and I start looking at, I've known and I've been aware that uh, vision training has been integrated into Major League Baseball. So I start to do a little research on that. And it's funny because there was sort of a big splash in the media approximately seven years ago where four or five teams had access to this one certain 
type of vision training program and their batting average, you know, mysteriously went up as compared to the rest of the league. And then you didn't hear about that anymore. And I didn't know if that was because it was so successful, it was top secret, now it's under wraps and they're not gonna let anybody know about it or what. But anyhow, so I continued to do a little research and I found this outfit and they've been around for a long time. And the, the name of this particular outfit is called Slow the Game Down. That is the name, quote unquote, Slow the Game Down. And I, you can I, make I, baseball slower. Well, you in, by using your mind, you can make a ninety-five mile an hour pitch. I think I, look I know slower. What saying. I get it now. <laughs> so I pulled up their landing uh, page on, as I was doing this research, and their their motto is pushing the limits of visual performance. I thought that's awesome. Who doesn't want to do that? Um, and then I continued to read. In the very first line of their sort of self description, they say, "Training athletes for over forty-five years." from George Brett in 71 to uh, the San Francisco Giants uh, World Series champs, 2010, 2012, 2014. And I know that you recently had uh, 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 a, um, a podcast with George Brett, and also you told me you guys were gonna have a cook-off. So I knew you'd love the tie-in. That guy was one of the pioneers of vision wow. sports training uh, through this group. At least that's one of the on best their players website. of all time. I wonder oh, if he attributes any of it to Well, this. you know, he's one of five players in history that have in their career more than 3,000 hits, more than 300 home runs, and a batting average of 300 or higher. Of all the people that have played Major League Baseball for, you know, 150 plus years, whatever it is, one of five. And here's something to go along with what we talk about in aging and vision is that he won a batting title in three different decades. Amazing. Which I don't think it'll ever be done again. He won probably it in not seventy six, the eighties, and in nineteen ninety. And he was the last player to come close to hit, hitting four hundred with Ted Williams. He ended up at three ninety one, but he was at four hundred for most of the season. So I, you start talking about vision, and I do now remember George telling me that he attributed his success at the plate with his ability to pick up the stitching and the spin on the ball. And then you brought in the Giants championship teams of Barry Bonds and the training that Barry Bonds did, who I consider the greatest hitter of all time in the sport. And people would say that I'm an idiot because of all of the no asterisks. But that guy saw one strike per game pretty much. And he hit it over the fence into McCovey Cove into San Francisco sure. Bay. And he did drills to where when the ball was in the air, it would have an odd or an even number on it. And he would be penalized and have to do calisthenics or push-ups or something if his dad threw a pitch and said only hit the even ones. And if he would hit an odd one, he'd have to. He could pick up the numbers on the balls. They say when it was spinning in the air at sixty feet six inches away. That's really hard to wrap your brain around. Um, but you know, as to his accomplishments, so I think you and I both know that you know steroids uh, um, can make you hit a ball further and steroids can make you recover quicker, but they don't make you see it better. And nobody controlled the at-bat, and nobody had better pitch selection. Nobody had a better approach to hitting than, than Barry Bonds. Yeah, I love that you say that, too. I agree 100%. Yeah. I agree, and I'm not taking anything away from what they say, but my opinion is is that they knew what was going on. They wanted those butts in those seats because the ball was flying out of the yard. Merchandise sales were at an all-time high. And now, what is making baseball famous again? Mike Trout and these guys are hitting 45 home runs. It's the biggest report on TV again. Is is this guy uh, on the Dodgers that's at 46? And there's several guys that are approaching right. 50 again. It's an exciting game. It, it, I, I love it. I mean, we, we That's a total other talk, but I think it is so interesting that vision – 
that these vision studies were going on back in the 70s. Can you believe it? Yeah, I really don't because now I'm pissed off that I get, I didn't at least get an opportunity to to succeed, you know, to at least participate in one of them. I could have been a better baseball player, doctor. I, I, I could have been I, I if I could have seen. I could have seen it. better. All right. Okay, so the next one is what? Well, you know, um, I, I also, in prepping for this, I came across something that I thought your listeners in particular might find interesting. And that is that there are some important differences between how humans see and how uh, hooved mammals, they're called ungulates, but this would Im- include deer and elk and antelope and how they see. And I just thought it was interesting. Um, you know, first of all, our eyes are more forward in our skull and closer together and we have approximately a 180 degree visual field well these animals their skulls are wider set and their eyes are further around they have a 280 degree visual field without turning their head Um, we basically have to turn all the way around to have a 360 degree they have to just turn their head a few degrees and they've got 360 degree coverage Um, we have better visual acuity i think we all kind of suspected that but it's actually been documented that um, elk, for example, the best they can see is like 2040, and most of us can see 2020. But they have a better ability of, of pattern recognition. And so that allows them to pick up a predator moving through the sagebrush at a distance on the horizon that we would never see. Um, you know, a mountain lion or a wolf or whatever, that, or, or a human hunter that could be approaching them. They're going to see just the movement and the change in pattern much sooner than we will. One thing I found out that was fascinating is um, our retina is m- more or less arranged uh, like, a, like a, a dartboard with the center of that dartboard being our macula and the very center of the bullseye being the fovea. And so it's all concentric and the closer to the fovea, the higher the acuity. And the only part of our eye that can resolve 2020 or 2015 is that tiny, tiny little pinpoint area in the center of the fovea. And, um, and, and that's the only part that can see that. And then in a small area, about a millimeter in size around that, we have high acuity. And that allows us being predators to focus in on the uh, individual target that we are sought after. But it also causes us in those situations sometimes to have tunnel vision. Um, and I think we've all experienced that when you lose track of what's going on around you because you're so focused on that target at hand. Um, these ungulates, these elk and deer in particular, their retina is not organized in that way. And rather than having a concentric circle in the middle uh, f- with which they focus, they actually have their macula is a horizontal band that goes across from side to side. And that allows them to monitor the horizon for predators much more acutely than, than we can. And so their vision is more um, horizontally oriented whereas ours is just we focus on what's in the center let me ask you this first of all how the hell do they know this how does science (laughs) how does an ophthalmologist or an optometrist (laughs) tell me that an elk has 20 40 vision do they have to cut the eyeball out and can tell through a study like that I, i i'm going to say that i think that that is the case because um, they can look at the the density and the spacing of the photoreceptors in the retina. And and we, we, we came close to talking about this earlier, but we never circled back to it. And that is, what is the limit of human vision? Well, you know, we say normal vision is 20-20, and 20-20 is very good vision. Our eye charts go down to 2010. 
So there's 2020, there's 2015, there's 2010. Um, it's theorized that just based on the size of the actual photoreceptor cells, that the best anyone could ever see if everything was perfect would be 28. Um, so let's say 28 is superhuman perfect vision. Now, I, I would imagine, you know, you can't, you know, you can't take a uh, elk and bring them into the lane and, and put a chart up in front of them. So I would imagine by, by dissecting the eye and looking on a, a microscopic level at the size and the spacing of the photoreceptors, they've determined that that's the, the highest acuity that they could achieve with that physiologic setup. But you know, that's also relevant to something else. And that is, um, you know, we have a lot more photoreceptors than they do. Um, but it doesn't mean that we have a, a better overall visual system. They are canvassing and assessing a much larger visual area, but through fewer megapixels. We're, we're viewing and processing a smaller visual area, but with more, more detectors, if you will, and, and a higher resolution. So, you know, to each his own and, and, and they have advantages and we have advantages. I wonder how, I wonder, I've always heard elk have the best vision in wild. You always hear turkeys do. Is it something to do with the brain capacity? A turkey's brain is a lot smaller than an elk's brain. I, I would tell you that um, also birds of prey birds have of prey. really good. Their brains have, are tiny. They have small brains. So when it just comes to that defensive, you know, mechanism of visual acuity to evade humans or other predators, I don't think that's determined by the size of the brain it makes you wonder how a duck if a duck is all instinctual if it's hereditary and ancestral of where he's going during the day mm -hmm. do they pick up the flash of a spinning wing decoy as they approach decoys they see that from far away and it gets their attention because real live ducks when they're on the water they're always moving they're flashing they're hit, splashing the water and everything i wonder how good a vision of a duck or a goose has to be able to pinpoint in on that and tell if those decoys are fake or to pick a, a, a potential predator, us, the boogeyman or a coyote or a red fox out of the line of trees. Mm -hmm. They gotta have some kind of visual acuity too I'm to do sure what they, they do. do. And, th and then on top of that, their acrobatic movements through the air to dodge tree limbs or to cut the air the way that they do. You've seen a maple leaf and turn upside down, keeping their head up and their vision forward of the landing zone. You think that a duck or a goose might have pretty good acuity as well. Yeah. And you know, I don't know how this happens, but uh, you and I have both seen this when we shoot at a dove in flight and we swear it reacts before Matrix. the round would get there. Matrix. And how does that happen? How does it, how does an, <laughs> I, I could see it like with a bow and arrow, they jump the string because it takes a little bit longer. It's not right. traveling there's as fast. A, there's a greater delay between the auditory and the, yes. yeah, and, and a lot of the rounds that we fire are obviously supersonic. Supersonic. Yeah. That's that. That's very interesting to me on the vision of four. I, I'd like to. I'd like to talk about that more. There's got to be some research done on the vision of why a bird of prey that was born a bird of prey just happens to have better vision than a bird that's getting preyed upon. Right. You know what I'm saying? They're, these ducks are the that, ones that, that are getting that, smoked. That, and that happened. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm is, saying? Which we is why the birds of prey, you know, we can't uh, kill are able to do what they do. We can't kill an eagle. They right. don't need as good a vision. Right, right. That they're the one. They're not being but, chased but, by. But, but they make a living with. But their they make vision. a living with their vision. Yeah. So, Ducks don't. They make yeah. a living by eating freaking something under the water. Yeah. 
the uh, the 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 last uh, point I had on that is that you know going back to our color vision discussion, and that is that these these ungulates, deer and elk and antelope, actually do see just in two colors, uh, blue and yellow. They blue can they yellow. can see gray and you know black and white, but they don't see a full spectrum of colors. So um, that's why you know if you have blaze orange uh, vest on, but it has a camo pattern, you still actually are hard to see. Uh, for, for an animal like that. Interesting. That orange is for another human to see. Right. To not shoot you. Right. But in our minds, now, we tell ourselves it, they're going to see us too. The animals. If you see have it. a solid blaze orange vest on, they're going to see that. That's an unnatural, you know, that's a, a big gray blob in coming at them in their mind. And they would pick up on that. And one of the biggest things about concealment and hiding from an animal's vision and what we do is utilizing the sun. Everybody says, well, we want it to be cloudy and stormy and all this. And I'm like, no, I want it to be sunny. Well, why? I want some shadows. I want to be able to hide from them better. They act different when it's sunny days. Mm -hmm. So the vision of a bird, this is very interesting too. When it's stormy out or low ceiling overcast days, ducks pick you apart way more than they do when it's sunny and bright out. When you're in the trees of Arkansas, you never ever want to hunt on a cloudy day. You don't even want to get out of bed. Not saying that you're not going to get some of them, but it is not going to be magical like it is when it's sunny and windy and cold. And even when you're in a cornfield in North Dakota or a pea field in Saskatchewan, is when it's cloudy, they pick you apart. When it's sunny, they act like ducks. They see that spin. They just dive bomb kamikaze in your decoy spread. Any way to explain that? Uh, you know, I'm sitting there as you're explaining that and trying to wrap my brain around why that might be. And I guess I, my, my thought process go along two lines. One is on those clear days, they probably have more confidence in what their visions, visual system is telling them. And they probably feel, well, I have good vision and it's clear and it's not overcast and I can see a long distance and I'm safer because of that. Whereas if you're hiding in a shadow because it is so sunny, they're going to have a harder time. And then the other thing might be just the physical fact that um, their visual system has to be able to function in both low light and bright light. But perhaps on those high in light intensity days, uh, their visual systems getting overwhelmed a little bit. You know, we do surgery on people and um, with the surgery, there's a microscope light. And at the end of that surgery, a patient will sit up and say, oh, wow, I don't really see anything. And we're like, well, give it a few seconds. Your retina has been overwhelmed by this light and it will bounce right back. But if there's too much light, you your photoreceptors that accomplish this transition of light into a neural impulse, uh, they can become a little bit washed out and a little bit metabolically challenged. Um, so I don't know if, uh, you know, on those really bright days, it's too much light and then they can't see you as well uh, because they also have to function in low light. And uh, uh, speaking of the low light, um, going back to the discussion of the elk, um, they only see in two colors, but they see ultraviolet, which is the blue end of the spectrum. 1,000 times better than we do. So they're, certainly their, their vision around dusk and dawn is infinitely better than ours. Okay, and then one thing that comes to mind is the, uh, the idea of being nocturnal. How, 
how do deer and elk and ducks become so successful at night? I really haven't looked at that, except I will tell you this. We have rods and we have cones. Um, The rods are what we use to see in, in, in dim light and they don't have any color perception. They are actually dichromatic. Um, and then the cones are what we use to look at anything with acuity to perceive color, to detect the detail of an image. Um, so, um, in, in our retinas, it's, uh, I want to say it's like we have 90 million rods and like 5 million cones. So you would think we would be really good to see, able to see at night. We don't see that great at night, right? We don't. Um, we can see somewhat, maybe better than some animals, but we don't see uh, uh, all that well at, at night. Um, and so I think with these elk and deer, if I'm not mistaken, I think they strictly have rods and it allows them to function at night. Well, think about a 747 going over the Atlantic Ocean from, from New York, from JFK to Rome. It's got all kinds of lights, it's got GPS, it's got air traffic control, it's got all this stuff that that keeps us safe in our aircraft. A duck will fly from Manitoba or Saskatchewan and and end up a few hours later in let's let's just say Fargo, North Dakota, and he's a lot of migration happens at night. On, on his I'm way to Argentina. On his way to yeah, on his way to Mexico and all that. But think about what you're hearing at night. They're literally flying up there. It, it, they must be able to go by starlight, moonlight. Obviously, that lights it up some. But their direction, their sense of direction, their internal GPS and mapping systems, their vision at night. Not to not to say, oh, I'm going to just take a little bit to the left, and they end up way over here where they're not supposed to end up. Mm-hmm. It's it's there's a lot of things that go on in the vision of 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 what a. a a duck or a goose is there might think about the migration, right? The might they're traveling I, I, thousands of miles. I don't miles. know if it pertains to this species. I know that I remember in some of my zoology uh, classes along the way, uh, certain animals will um, ingest just as a part of their diet iron and the iron will be concentrated in a certain part in their brain. And they feel like that there's an internal compass that allows them to detect the magnetic uh, field of the earth. <laughs> wow. I don't know, uh, you know, the details of that, but I remember reading that and knowing that certain animals they actually think can navigate based on uh, sort of an internal compass. They, zoology classes and an internal compass, it's almost, I don't know. I don't know if there's been enough study done, but it seems to me like after all these years of you being out of medical school and, and optometry school, that you need to do a thesis on this because this yeah. is. I think it's. I think it's interesting. That's what I'm going to do in my spare time, Chad. <laughs> just just develop a thesis on that, Doc. Um, real quick, you t- you keep throwing around numbers. Okay. 2020, 2015, 2010. Mm-hmm. What does that mean to in layman's terms? Yeah. And can one eye be different than the other? Or are you Absolutely. automatically born with 2020 in both eyes? Are you born with 2015 or can you have 2020, 2015? How does that work? Right. Sort of, you know, in layman's understanding, the term 2020 technically means that you can see at 20 feet what the ideal patient, quote unquote, can see at 20 feet. So that means you're seeing the line on the eye chart that the other guy can see. Um, if we say you're 2040, that means that you can see at 20 feet what this other guy next to you can be back at 40 feet 
and he can see it. So 2040, even though that doesn't sound bad, think about what that means. If the, the person, let's say you have 2040 and the other person has 2020, he can see something twice as far away as you can. You're at a disadvantage by You're 20 disadvantage. feet right off the bat. Yeah, right off the bat. Now, now let's take it the other way. 2015 means that you see at 20 feet what that guy sees at 15 feet. And 2010 means you see at 20 feet what he sees at 10 feet. Now, that's sort of a low-level understanding, a way to sort of compare visual acuities. The actual science behind it is... When they were developing the eye chart that you see on the wall, and that's called the Snellen eye chart, um, they actually went back and on sort of a, a, a cellular level, they figured out what would be the smallest character detail that you could resolve, like say the spaces between the lines on an E, right? There's three bars and there's two spaces. So they looked at the size of our photoreceptors and their organization and distribution in the retina. And they said, well, this would be the smallest we could resolve. And I think they made that 2010. Um, so, um, and, and as I've told you, there's been uh, other instruments that have been able to document that some really gifted people can see 28, but the actual definition of, of 2020 and 2015 and 2010 uh, on a scientific level pertains to the size of those character details at that distance. And that actually corresponds to the individual photoreceptors that are encountering that image. Wow. And that's, that's a little bit above layman's terms of right. what 2020 vision means. They say that it's the angle of arc that it subtends on the retina just to make it easy. Okay, so if you look behind you real quick over your right shoulder, you see the, the, you, you see the, the Reno Gazette Journal paper with the country singer on it? Sure. Okay, up top it says R Nevada. I can read that right here. That's probably, I'm probably eight feet from that, 10 feet maybe? Uh, yeah, you're easily like 10, 12 feet. 10, 12 feet. It says R Nevada. Okay. Okay, now you go over to the right a couple inches, there's a ticket. You see that ticket there above the license plate? Okay. I can't read one word on that ticket. Right. Um, the font is smaller, but if you go back to the left, mm -hmm. I can read some of the writing that he wrote on that autograph, that little signature line. I can read the word do in the second line. Okay. Do you know where I'm going with this sure. is that my eyes are, they, they can't be that bad if I can see that. Right. But that's yeah, only no, 12 feet. It, yeah. Yeah. No. And your eyes are not that bad. I don't want you to, you know think that we're going Ray Charles here. We're not getting sunglasses and a cane anytime soon. Man, I hope not. Wouldn't that not just be, or Ronnie Millsap, there's a stranger in my house. How in the hell, I watched Ronnie Millsap come off a bus and walk to this porta potty with no supervision, no guidance, and no cane. I go, the hell, I've seen him get up from the piano on stage and walk right to the microphone. Right. So I guess what this guy would do is that he would go and count the steps in the direction of his sure. mental compass. Right. Of, as soon as he would get to a venue, he would memorize. Or, or maybe he had them put the microphone stand a certain distance from his piano bench. But it's dark. Yeah. There's thousands of people in the audience. If he falls off the stage, it's... A, pain think about like yeah i mean think yeah, about how incredible. important vision is i mean i'm not telling you something right that's, that so no it's a it's a, it's a wonderful fascinating important sense that we so have been awesome. blessed with and and given with and, and we should never take it for granted and i consider it um a privilege uh, to be involved 
in, yeah. in, in, in maintaining that, in improving that, in restoring that, in, in, in the case of diseases like glaucoma, preventing blindness. So it's, uh, you know, you, you, you run into all different types of people and people from all different walks of life as we bounce around through, through our lives. And you find people who are very happy and satisfied in what they do. And you find other people who you think, well, maybe they're a little burnt out or maybe they're not enjoying this, or maybe they would have rather have made a different career decision and that sort of thing. But I can't think of a, of anything that I would rather do than what I do. Oh, it's so it's got to be the most rewarding thing ever to let people become a visionary, let people see the light, yeah. let people see better. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. It it's, is. It's it's it's, uh, it's, it's a, meaningful. It's so meaningful, and I give you kudos for it. And I would, I want to do something, and I don't know if you would ever allow it because I don't know the ethics or again the compromise that can be done on this. But with what I do, it would be very interesting for our audience to see this take place if you would ever allow it. I guarantee you that you know all you have to have is is the patient's consent. And in this day and age, um, you know, people actually like publicity. There was a time when people would have been like, oh no, that's private, get those cameras out of here. Nowadays, people clamor for the camera. Um, and we actually have had some, uh, we've had some news coverage as we've introduced innovative technologies in the marketplace. I've been on Channel 2 News three or four times, and I was also on Channel 8 News. And so when they come to the surgery center to cover a new procedure, we will inform the patient that, hey, you know, the news cameras are here and this crew is here, and they would like to interview you, follow me for the surgery, have a camera in there. And if they consent to it, it's no problem. Well, I want to um, consent to mine. So I would like to first film a test of where I'm at. Sure. And depict that. Like, hey, at this day, before the surgery, Chad's left eye's doing this, Chad's right eye's doing this. Because yeah. when I shoot a gun, I'm left eye. I'm a left-hander. Oh, that's right. But playing baseball, I was a left-handed hitter. I was, I'm right eye dominant, right? Mm -hmm. So as a, as a baseball player, I would turn my head and I would try to put both eyes on the pitcher. But when I hold up my circle, okay, you picture me, I got my hands together in, the, in an O. I, I put them out, both eyes open. I put it over that sign up there mm -hmm. with that mallard duck. I close my left eye and I can still see my full picture. I close my right eye and it's cut off by at least 50%. That so that's your right eye dominant. Right eye dominant. And I'm shooting left-handed. Oh, so, okay. Okay. So I got both eyes open. Even hitting a baseball, I was right eye dominant as a left-handed hitter, which is fine because that's my lead eye. But down the barrel of a shotgun, I got my less dominant eye down the rib of a shotgun. That's got to be putting me at a disadvantage no matter what. So I would like to take the tests. The, you know, the ones that we need to do again, show it and document it and then document the surgery and then document the test after and then document me in the field and give an honest, uh, just an honest analysis of, look, I'm seeing better because I've really started to see the blurriness, the cloudiness, don't like it. I always feel like I got a little bit of a mud puddle over my right eye. Sure. I want to get that out, whether it's cataracts, you're going to you're gonna decide that. I want to sure. commit to it and come in there and document I, this. I, for we'd TV. love to do it. I think it'd be awesome. I think it would be awesome too. Well, I want to do it. I appreciate right. you being here. Yeah. My do you want pleasure. to close with anything? Do you have any notes that you want to say? I think I want to do this again after the surgery. We'll come back and do another mm -hmm. episode. Um, no, you know, I, um, I, I, you know, I've enjoyed this. You asked me to do it and I said, let's do it. That sounds like fun. Took us a little while just to coordinate on it. Um, before we close, the only thing I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, you've had 
outstanding guests. You've had George Brett, you've had Uriah Faber, you've had Joey Gilbert, you've had a, a, you know a, a Olympic gold medalist David Weiss. I feel very fortunate to be in here chatting with you. Thank um, you. Also, you've had my friend Scott Shaleen on here a couple of times. Great guy, great family. His daughter plays on my daughter's soccer team, and they're terrific people. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna test your memory. When we were on our waterfowl hunt in Colorado, Front Range, we took one night. We went into town to a country bar. Where'd we go? Grizzly Road. Who'd we see? Joe Diffie. Yeah, Joe Diffie. I didn't know yeah. if you remember that or not. Oh God! But every time me. I hear country uh, music is every, every time I hear uh, 1994, I go back to Where Grizzly Rose. Yeah. So that was a good time. John man. Deere Green. That's right. My favorite song that he sings is the. Uh, Welcome to Earth, Third Rock from the Sun. Sure. Oh, I'm a huge yeah. The next week, I like I was, the Prop Me Up Beside the Jukebox yeah. song. Prop Me Up Beside the... I was up but there. But I really like that tribute that uh, Jason Aldean and I think Thomas Rhett did. Joe Diffie. Yeah. They did. The week later at the Grizzly Rose, I went and watched Tracy Lawrence there too. Oh, cool. He's a stud. You remember yeah. him? Yeah, I do. Um, anyway, yeah, Grizzly Rose, the, uh, the, the front range of Colorado. What I think is cool about that trip is that it changed my dentist and it changed my optometrist and it changed my <laughs> outlook on medical. I get the podcast. I talk with Eric. He's a hunter. I'm in his yeah, chair all Eric's the time. Eric's a great hunter. And uh, we, we had a, uh, a topic for another day is we had a fantastic uh, safari trip to Africa and very quite quite successful really yeah i want to hear about it all right we'll do that on the dr matt mills an eye surgeon an ophthalmologist educated twenty-five thousand cataract surgeries thousands and thousands of lasik surgeries do you ever worry about your hands do you watch them like a hawk do you, you not, know that's you, interesting because uh, up until recently i've had this mentality that we all start out with you know that we're invincible right? We're never going to crash our mountain bike. We're never going to crash our snowboard. We're just going to go berserk throughout the environment and nothing will ever happen. And, you know, when I was growing up in my college years, I used to roof houses and I had no fear of heights. I'd go right to the edge. I'd, you know, whether or not I was clipped off and whether or not that was smart, all these things. So I don't consciously have, uh, you know, uh, any sort of, you know, protection or anything like that that I'm doing for them. But when I ride motorcycles, I'm careful. When I'm on my mountain bike, I'm careful. Um, when I snowboard, I do wear the wrist guards. Um, so yeah, no, I realize I've got a lot riding on these things and, um, and, and, and I don't take that for granted. Yeah, be careful. You know, I guess one thing, if you, you know, you asked me if I had a, just a message in closing, is you know what our practice is really about it's called eye care professionals and we actually really do care about your vision that's our goal that's our focus that's our mission our mission is your vision and uh so if you're out there and you need uh an evaluation and particularly if you need a, a surgical intervention to improve your vision or restore your vision or preserve your vision uh give us a call um eye care professionals it's renoeyecare.com uh, three, two, two, 1000. It's seven, seven, five, three, two, two, 1000. But, um, I think through listening to this, you probably have a feel for what I'm about and my approach to patient care and, um, uh, how we strive for excellence in all that we do. So it's been a real pleasure. It's been no, a fun I, morning. I, for me, it's been a great pleasure, big pleasure. I learned a ton. I'm intrigued. And what I love about it is how it correlates to life 
It can correlate to what I do for a living, but it correlates to what every person in this country needs to pay attention is that we're nothing without what's in front of us and being able to see that because that's what life's all about. I, I feel so bad for people that are blind or blind in one eye or take on an injury or are born that way. I, can, I cannot imagine going through life and I'm not saying that there's not stuff that can be worse. I'm just saying that vision is so important in what I get to see on a daily basis from my daughter to the, my guests, to the TV show, to mother nature, to a wild duck, to my dogs. If I didn't get to see that, I'm sure that we would figure out a way to sense it and feel it and get, get a taste of it. But vision to me is the absolute 100% the most important thing in the world. Because even if you get diagnosed with cancer, you still get the joy of seeing your loved ones no matter how long you have left. And again, I don't like going that route because I can't stand that word cancer, but mm -hmm. it's, it's real life. Yeah. Vision is so key in everything that we have in front Con of us. Consistently, um, repeatedly, when polls are taken and people are asked to rank or value their senses, it's vision. vision. Vision is the number one most valuable sense according to the public at large. If I feel this, I'd rather look in here and see this, but I would like some sushi in front of me that I could taste, but I do like the color of But you sushi. want to see those little uh, <laughs> fish eggs. <laughs> I love it, man. I appreciate it, Dr. Matt Mills. Yeah, it's been a blast. Everybody out there, thank you so much for listening to another episode. We're fired up about it. We're humbled by the success of the podcast. Thank you guys so much for the support. Please support our partners and sponsors that support us. And you can check us out at all of our different websites. Thislifeain'tforeverybody.com, thefoullife.com, jargongamecalls.com, banded.com, and averyoutdoors.com. Thank you so much. We have a lot more exciting news coming up in the podcast world. Look at us on our YouTube station and brand new episodes of The Foul Life airing right now exclusively on the Outdoor Channel. I'm Chad Belding. Tom Rashashin, do me a huge favor. Hit that button. Leith Lofton, a.k.a. Haas. What you gonna do when the money's all gone? Appreciate you. Life on earth won't last that long What you gonna do when the money's all gone? Say life on earth won't last that long What you gonna do when the money's all gone?